It's Tuesday, June 29th, 2021, and this is the Talk Film Society podcast. I am your host, Marcelo Pico, editor-in-chief of Talk Film Society. Here to intro this episode, it's going to be quick because, hey... It's a long one. Uh, this is another uh, episode as part of our TFS 100 series. We're uh, asking our guests uh, what their top 25 films of all time are. We want to know their list and we want to know your list. Uh, go to talkfilmsociety.com slash TFS 100. That's TFS 100 uh, to submit your ballot. Uh, for your top 25 films of all time so we can count them all up we can count those ballots and announce our top 100 list uh, later in the year Uh, Manish Mathur is my guest this week uh, for this episode in which he talks about his top 25 films of all time Um, and yeah this is uh, by my count the longest talk film society podcast uh, uh, episode ever um, uh, I think on the entire network. So, congratulations, Manish! Uh, uh, record, uh, and you did end up beating David Giannini by uh, uh, almost an hour, because uh, that was the uh, thing we talked about right before we started recording. And you'll hear um, some of that conversation in the beginning. But yes, uh, uh, you did it. Uh, but that, I think that's it. Um, without further ado, for the next three hours and thirty minutes. Uh, please enjoy uh, me and Manish as Manish discusses his top 25 films of all time. It's 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 like a it's like a uh, it, it depends on who I talk to. That's that's basically what's come down to in terms of length. Um, because hey, I recorded an episode with Sarah Sorrentino, like on Sunday, and her and I did it in like an hour and ten minutes. And then Bri- yeah. Brianna's episode was like <clears throat> around the same time, like an hour twenty maybe. Uh, and then of course David's is like two hours and thirty minutes. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think you know it's funny because um, I I remember Sarah being like really against long podcasts. Yeah, and um, yeah. I remember her saying that it was partially a, a male thing to make really long podcasts. Which I don't, I don't, I don't want to actually say that she said that, but that's my memory of something that she said. And she didn't say that, Sarah. I apologize, but um, I'm pretty sure. I mean, whoever, whether it's Sarah or someone else, I'm pretty sure that's true because a lot of the podcasts that I listen to that go over two hours are mainly hosted by men or have a majority male panel. <laughs> it's it's interesting you bring that up because yes, uh, Sarah Sorrentino did say that. I remember her saying yeah. that. Um, and I believe it might have been in, in our old Slack, uh, but I'm sure she said it on Twitter too. So it's it's yeah. it, it's out there. But, um, <laughs> you know, she says all that and yet I'm editing the new sequels, which uh, she, I think she prized herself in a keeping those like 30 minutes long the new one's like an hour long so yeah. i mean even even she can go long sometimes but she's very much of the idea of like let's cut to the chase sort of thing which i i'm, I'm totally behind too but if somebody wants to just talk 
about you know breaking to electric boogaloo for like 10 minutes like jacob de noble just did uh on the, <laughs> on the last episode then pa- more power to him like i i i yeah. do i, I kind of take a back seat to these episodes i've been finding out and just i'm letting like the guests sort of drive it for the most part with the discussion because it's their movies it's like their favorites of all time and th- like i chime in like saying you know i have this opinion but you tell me why you love it because that's what i'm here for as like the host and also just as a listener like if you can if you yeah. want to ramble on for as long as you want about like i don't know, like the, some of the films here manish you go ahead and we'll be here for five hours not really but you know we'll, we'll be here <laughs> yeah. for a while so yeah that's my approach to this is kind of like because like in the last episodes I've done, I've kind of tried to tackle it in a way that I think will make the conversation shorter, but it always just ends up being long anyway. <laughs> it's like maybe I'll yeah. do like five at a time or kind of jump around. Maybe we can do like a speed round, but no, it always just ends up being let's talk about this for as long as as um, as you want, basically, as the guest wants. So that's that's the approach to this. So we'll see. We'll see if like we're we're gonna be able to beat, you know, David's two hour, you know, forty no, it was exactly two hours, two hours and thirty five minutes. minutes. Yeah, two hours and thirty five minutes. I was minutes. planning on going, you know, full three hours. Um. <laughs> we'll see. We can make that happen, Manish. I mean if if anything, I I'm down. Um Yeah. Well, why don't we get started? Because like you you have been following, you know, this whole TFS 100 thing uh, in the Discord. We talked about it, and you were one of the first who made your list. Um, and and I have mentioned you. I think I'm. I mean, you were mentioned in Greg's episode, which you said you listened to. And yeah. I, I, <laughs> I and, appreciated that. Yeah, and I be, I can't remember if it was in that episode or the one after that where. I bring up the fact that what you said about you know one director a mo- like you know one director one movie per list and I kind of have taken that guideline for my list because it's tough to just say okay let me just pick one Scorsese one Coen's one etc whatever yeah but yeah. when I actually think about it I could maybe put two Scorsese's. I could put two Coen Brothers. Who knows? It's tough, though. But that's what you, for sure, put in my mind, is like that sort of rule. Um, yeah, which I mean... I, I'm looking at your list. I think you follow that rule, right? Oh, I mean, I checked multiple times yeah. to make sure. Um, because I think that's really important for me. Because you, um, when I am in love with a filmmaker, then I could fill my entire list with you know, those same five filmmakers that I uphold as, you know, my sort of titans, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that would be unfair to um, to me, or to it would be unfair to the filmmakers or the movies that I love that aren't from those filmmakers. And I would feel like, I don't know, I, I mean, I, to me, it felt like it would feel like cheating to put like three Hitchcock movies because like I love Hitchcock and I could fill this whole list with Hitchcock movies you know and um, same with Almodovar, Ang Lee you know Tarantino all these guys um, uh, so I'm like it just didn't seem right to me to do one and like I want to make like my goal was to make this a list that was as diverse as possible not in terms of like racial diversity I really actually failed on that to be honest but um 
in terms of just like the type of movie. And of course, like Scorsese, Kubrick, Spielberg, like they've all had such diverse careers. So like, even if it was just those like, you know, Fincher, even if it was just like those people, it would be a diverse list anyway. But I just wanted to make it a little bit more interesting, a little bit more challenging. But I do appreciate, you know, if you, you know, if you know, Goodfellas and Silence are two of your favorite twenty-five movies of all time, you know, that more power to that too. I get it, you know. But um, to me, I just wanted to make it a little bit more challenging um, and kind of force myself to really whittle down my favorite filmmakers to like one film as hard as that sounds. Uh, and it was really, it was, it was hard. <laughs> yeah. That's going to be um, my next question is like, how yeah. hard was it to actually, I uh, narrow it down to 25. Cause I just talked with yeah. uh, Jacob DeNoble yeah. and like he said, once he got to like 27, like he really had a hard time, like, yeah. like you know, yeah. picking those last 25. Yeah. I mean, um, I, you know, I, I had my first draft of this list, um, did not have a Scorsese movie, and it had the Keir Knightley Pride and Prejudice, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. And I was like, you know, this list feels incomplete without Scorsese. Um, and so I added The Age of Innocence, which was number, well, it was 26, because I just had added it to the bottom of the list, and right. I moved it up. And I was like, okay, which of these do I take out? Um, and it was, that was like the hardest part because I didn't want to take any of them out. Um, and so I decided to take out um, Pride and Prejudice, which felt like the most similar to my Scorsese pick. Um, and also felt like, to me, it was also like, well, which movie, like which genre is kind of most represented here? And so I can maybe take something out that kind of fits that genre. You know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah. having two, you know, period repressed romances felt, even though those movies are very different, or Age of Innocence is very different from Pride and Prejudice, of course. But I was like, it just seems maybe like they're both period romances. They're both very much about oppression and society. So I was like, okay, that's got to go. As much as it killed me to do it, but because um, uh, yeah, that, it was just like it's hard when you get to like twenty six, twenty seven. I totally empathize with Jacob because that's when it gets really challenging. Yeah, um, it's it really it was tough hard. for me too because like I'm in the process of also making my top twenty five and the the last rough draft I have is like twenty nine movies and I'm like oh I still forgetting some like I, I kind of went through what you went through I like I didn't have a particular director that I just realized oh I think it was David Lynch I was like oh I forgot a, I forgot a David Lynch movie and of course I have to have a David Lynch movie on there and that that kind of ruins everything for me yeah 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 um, I realize I don't have David Fincher on here either but whatever <laughs> it's fine it's, 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 he's I got, also was like I don't I don't want to get well yeah I, I think you're about to say that he's been represented a few times on these lists is that what you were saying Kind of that. I was just saying, yeah, yeah we, we've we talked about him plenty. It's not, I don't yeah. want to dismiss his work, obviously, because he's like my second favorite filmmaker. But, yeah. you know, the most interesting conversations I've had are of movies that I either I didn't expect to see on the list or I have never heard of. Um, yeah. And also ones that may not make my list, you know, but uh, I think any Fincher movie that comes up. Uh, I will agree. Yes, it's amazing. Uh, anyone he's made, yeah. you, you could point to and say that. Um, 
but you know i want to hear you know uh, people talk about i don't know uh, uh just some of these on here for sure on your list i have not heard of or just have like seen passing mention of um some you've written about and i just want to hear your take on that manish it's okay you don't have a david fincher if you had a david <laughs> if you had a david fincher movie on there what what which one would be that close to making your top 25 by the way um probably either gone girl or zodiac yeah see it um it, it it always ends up with maybe zodiac for me and maybe social yeah. network gone girl yeah yeah I, mean, I think those three are like his best movies. but honestly like my main thing was like once i kind of made once i sent this list out to the discord i'm like i'm not going to look at it again <laughs> because like you know you could think like you know 25 is such a small number when it comes to stuff like this, especially with my rule of only one, because I'm like, yeah, I'd love to have Fincher on here. I'd love to have, um, you know, like George Cukor on here. Like, I'd love to have any of these guys on there. Um, but uh, yeah, Gina Prince Bythewood. I mean, I'd love to have her on this list. You know, loving basketball should be here. Uh, but yeah, it just gotta, you just gotta make the, you just gotta like. Finish it and not look at it ever again. <laughs> it's gonna, it, it'll drive me crazy the more yeah. that I think about it. You know? it, it, it'll, it. It'll change daily is, is what I'm finding out. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, why don't we jump into it? Uh, sure. So, yes, you sent me over your ranked top 25. We're going to go from the bottom to the top, 25 to 1. We'll jump around here and there just to make things interesting for me anyway. You know, uh, yeah. but but we're gonna eventually end with your number one, um, and also if if anybody listening wants to read back, read through the list as we go through them. Uh, the list is on the episode page on talkfilmsociety.com, and I'm sure it's on like Spotify, maybe in like iTunes, the podcast description. Um, but there you go. Okay, number twenty five, the sixth sense from 1999. Um, uh, I mean, hey, Manish, you did a whole series on this director, <laughs> M. Night Shyamalan. Yeah. Um, but yeah, talk about The Sixth Sense coming in, because it's number 25. Like, was it, uh, I'm assuming it's, you know, it could have been bumped off. Like, how hard was it to keep it at your 25? Actually, I wanted to keep this at 25. Um, I was never really, like, this feels like a good 25 movie, you know, because... I know, that sounds so condescending. Um, but I was like, I didn't, I always wanted to have it on there because I wanted to have M. Night on the list. I wanted to have more genre on the list. Um, but, you know, I love this movie. I think it's so, um, it's so beautifully executed. Um, like, I think the screenplay is super tight and it does what exactly it has to do. And, you know, I'm sure there are people who are, you know, really good at picking holes in it and saying, well, this doesn't work or this is kind of gimmicky or whatever. But, you know, to me, The Sixth Sense, it reminds me of the kind of, you know, old school, um, kind of like 90s adult oriented horror movies that are just so, um, they're just so like, perfectly calibrated they're very they seem intellectual they seem very emotionally resonant they are visually exciting and interesting they have really committed performances and 
you know, it's just the kind, you know, I, I hate to say this, but it's the kind of movie that we don't really get that often, which is just like a horror thriller suspense movie that is slow and deliberate that's like pitched towards adults and that's actually like pretty scary and um you know i i just think that it's really a major achievement for M. Night Shyamalan. i mean this is his third movie but his first kind of major major hit major breakthrough and you know i I don't want to be the kind of person that's like, well, his, you know, his first breakthrough was his best movie. Um, and, you know, he's, of course, have done a brilliant films after, like, The Visit, you know, the, of course, the Unbreakable trilogy, um, Signs, even, uh, The Village. But um, I really, uh, I, I really am just so, like, all of this element, like, he just, like, arrived with this movie so fully formed and it's so tight. Um, I'm like I remember watching it for the first time and being so scared by the Misha Barton scene, um, oh, yeah. and uh, like I've had nightmares about that after watching this movie. Um, and even when I watched it as an adult, I still like got scared and like really got under my skin. Um, and I couldn't sleep that night. Just not even because it was like so scary, but just like it just gets in your head and it's so powerful. Uh, Tony Collette is brilliant in this movie you know she's sort of the mvp of it and yeah i think it's just like it's so somber but it's so scary and so um just exciting you know it's just it's, there's really not, nothing quite like it it's a really good um it's a good movie like i know m night is sort of like the twist guy but i feel like this movie the reveal is so inevitable that it doesn't feel like a gimmick twist it feels like a i mean actually i think that's true of all of his movies i actually don't think any of them are like gotcha twists i think they're all set up extremely well um especially the village which i will go to bat for um but yeah i think that the sixth sense just like just got it right and he kept challenging himself and you know he's you know i'm really i'm just so every time i watch this movie i think it's just extremely well crafted yeah i think uh, people just tend to grasp grasp onto that zeitgeisty thing of like the twist ending and just forget that it's just still so much of an effective thriller like now like yeah. comparing it to like what uh, the mainstream horror movies now. Well, I say mainstream, not in, like derogatory sense, but when I think mainstream is like you know the elevated quote unquote horror movies. You yeah. know, uh, the sixth sense like basically, you know, didn't necessarily invent that, but like brought it to the forefront of like oh, like this is high caliber masterclass stuff, and you know, uh, I guess brought horror to like a new realm. Like, hey, you yeah, know, it, it could absolutely. be it, it could be this serious, it could be this amazing, and have mass appeal. So yes, it I think it holds up perfectly. I think I think one thing that separates the Sixth Sense from elevated horror movies of today, uh, even ones that I really love, like Doctor Sleep and Suspiria and Hereditary, but I think there's such a um, there's such a like pop art sensibility to the sixth sense. Like this movie is a crowd pleaser in so many ways. It's so, it's vi- like viscerally scary. It's emotionally resonant. The characters are engaging. It's funny at times. It's weird. And when you get to stuff like, um, you know, the A24 horror movies, like uh, the one we don't like that everyone else loves, uh, it comes at night. I'm like, this movie is just not <laughs> scary. Like, I don't know what the heart, like, I don't even know what the it is that comes at night. But um, <laughs> I think uh, I think the sixth sense, like, 
it is elevated horror, um, but it also feels like something you would watch at a sleepover, you know, when yeah. you were 13 years old. And I, I don't know if anyone is watching Dr. Sleep at sleepovers. Maybe they are. Yeah, <laughs> Maybe they are. But I mean, I love Dr. Sleep. Don't get me wrong. Um, but yeah, so I think that, you know, and my Shyamalan is a showman, you know, like he's in that Spielberg tradition that, you know, James Cameron tradition of being like, let me just put all my cards on the table and just like entertain you while also giving you this really sophisticated screenplay and elegant execution and, you know, visual scares. Yeah, absolutely. Um, why don't we go to 24? Hey, Marie Antoinette. Which I am absolutely thrilled. This is on here, Manish, because I just talked to Brianna about this, uh, and it makes me think. You know what? I haven't looked at the other lists, you know, that that have come in for the talk from Society One Hundred. I don't know how many else. I don't know how many more people voted for Marie Antoinette, but I kind of hope now that it ends up being on the top one hundred list because any Sofia Coppola movie should be on the top one hundred list, and especially this one. I, I love Marie Antoinette. Yeah, I mean, I really can't think of any bad Sofia Coppola movie. Um, I mean, I haven't seen her latest one, but I think any of her film. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's like I had. I have this thing with Apple TV that I just don't. I don't want to subscribe to it. Um, <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> out of principle, because um, it just seems ridiculous. Uh, but I think like any of her movies would could be on any of these lists, and it would make total sense. Um, but the reason why I picked Marie Antoinette over something a little bit more obvious like um, The Virgin Suicides or Lost in Translation or even The Beguiled is that I think Marie Antoinette is like the purest um, distillation of her um, like pop art beast, like um, sensibility. Yeah. And uh, because it's... Um, I think the you know a close comparison would be you know the bling ring which I think is also a pretty great movie. Um I I believe Dave Giannini is a huge fan of that movie as well. Uh but I the what I love about Marie Antoinette is that she really is like taking this you know a bio French biopic about Marie Antoinette and you know it's shot at the Versailles castle. Um it's like this um you know, it's like she just takes something so, like, staid and makes it so, like, exciting and makes it her own. And she not only really um, re-theorizes Marie Antoinette, but also kind of brings Marie Antoinette into, like, the 21st century, which sounds so cliche, but... Um, she, like, makes this movie so relatable by, like, turning Versailles into, like, a high school. You know, it's basically, like, Clueless, but Ray Antoinette. <laughs> um, yeah. And, uh, you know, her music choices, her costuming, everything is just so, you know... Um, I don't think women filmmakers get the credit for being, like, visual auteurs as much as they are. Um, the, like, the same way that a Fincher or a Tantino gets that credit... Uh, because especially someone as like obviously girlish as Sofia Coppola just kind of like okay yeah it looks pretty that's why she did it but she's I mean this is a really like this I think Marie Antoinette is a very strong statement movie from her and everything is so Sofia Coppola and her you know I'm a big fan of her sort of satires of white womanhood yeah um, 
because I, you know, people love to criticize her for having very white movies, but I think all of her movies are criticisms of whiteness, especially white feminism. And I think Marie Antoinette is as well, but while also being kind of a more, I don't want to say, I think a more empathetic take on Marie Antoinette. As just seeing as it's like, you know, we all know her as like the let, let them eat cake, you know, kind of bitch queen, but you know, she's also a human being and, you know, she's also in a very impossible situation. You know, no one really knows what she was like. Um, and I think even, um, I mean, even the last, the last scene of this movie, which is um, Marie Antoinette and the king in the carriage, and she's looking outside the window um, and the king says, oh, are you looking at your, um, like, are you admiring your lemon trees? And Marie Antoinette says, no, I'm saying goodbye. And to me, I'm like, that's such a perfect scene of, like, the expectations that were put on Marie Antoinette and sort of the stories that were written for her, that she was this, like, vain, um, vain, self-obsessed, kind of, like, like gluttonous or, like, materialistic queen. And, you know, maybe she was, I'm sure she was that because that's what she became, but she was also a, a woman. She's also a person, a human being, you know, and... You know, a teenager who was kind of put in this role and had no guidance or no uh, no one to really kind of let her grow up. So, yeah, I mean, I think Marie Antoinette is just, you know, I think it's a great movie. I'm so glad that it's getting, you know, a reappraisal or that it has been getting a reappraisal. Yeah. Um, I'd like to think my article for Talking Society had a hand in that. <laughs> I uh, believe so, yeah. <laughs> I really do love that article. I'm really proud of that one. No, it's um, really good, honestly, Manish. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and it, it, like any like any chance to just, you know, uh, 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 remind people of how great her work is, like Marie Antoinette. Yeah. Like I wrote something recently on Somewhere, which I yeah, kinda, yeah. I, I, I reevaluated saw again and just saw like the greatness in it because like kind of what you were saying before and this is like more, more pointed towards like celebrity but like she can take you know those characters in somewhere and like give them like humanity and give them like this like you know uh, you know say yes this celebrity culture is like it is as insane as you think it is but it also is you know is affecting these people in a way that you wouldn't necessarily think because you wouldn't say they're relatable until you actually see them yeah. you know live their lives so that's that, that is what I love seeing throughout her entire career is like you know at first glance like even in like her new one like on the rocks like with you know with um Bill Murray, like Bill Murray's like driving like a fast car, like a super like expensive car through like New York City in the middle of the night and, you know, talks his way out of a speeding ticket. But that relationship like between like father and daughter in that movie is like still so real. That's what I'm just right. astonished by with, with Coppola as a filmmaker. Like, even though, like, you know, her background and everything, yes, you know, you know, uh, uh, a, a kid to a famous director, you know, uh, uh, basically lived like a, 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 a well life, but still is able to, you know, give this, uh, give us as an audience, like this, insight into like um, giving us empathy into these characters so yeah I love her yeah I love her I also want to give a shout out to Kirsten Dunst um, someone else who I think has been victim of being kind of dismissed for so long and you know when you look back to her work with Coppola or Spider-Man or Eternal Sunshine I and mean, she's giving really intense performances 
um, and especially Marie Antoinette. You know, I mean, if any, if anything humanizes Marie Antoinette as a person, it's Kirsten Dunst as well. You know, she's just so uh, so empathetic and sweet and funny and you know infuriating and she's just all these things in this movie and it's really a tremendous performance that i think really got written off as like you know a music video performance at the time but thankfully kirsten dunst is getting her time in the sun thanks to like fargo or whatever oh yeah yeah i i I love her i've loved her for forever but yeah uh, but yeah Yeah. uh why don't we jump ahead a bit just by like two to another female filmmaker who i love who i see like her in like in in the movie she writes and makes uh greta gerwig's little women at 22 from 2019 uh again another one i'm I'm happy to see on this list manish because i love little women so much and every time i see it i love it more which yeah i'm i'm super just happy about that it's that graver movie from my one of my favorite filmmakers that like Honestly, like it's is like turning more and more personal with every viewing I I, I watch of it. But yeah, t- talk about Little Women, Manish. Well, first of all, choosing between Ladybird and Little Women was very difficult. Yeah, you, that you know, Greta Celeste Gerwig had to be on this list just because you know every time I watch Little Women, I will tweet about it constantly for like a week and a half. Uh, and same with Lady Bird. But I think the reason why I went with Little Women, I think, is partially because of the ambition of it. You know, her decision to rework the structure of the novel and um, really, I think, make this adaptation her own. I mean, I remember when this movie was announced and almost up until it came out, everyone was like, why do we need another Little Women? It's been made into like a million movies. Um, You know, it seems like an easy cash grab coming out at Christmas. And then the movie comes out and people were criticizing it. Like, it doesn't make any sense. It was hard to follow. I got a headache trying to figure out what Steve was happening, what timeline. Um, So I saw the movie three times in theaters. And um, each time I saw it, the uh, structural choices made even more sense. And the visual language of the movie really made so much it clicked so well that I cannot even imagine reading this book uh, in chronological order because I'm like, mm-hmm. it, just, it just feels so. Um, I mean, I've seen the other Little Women adaptations, most recently the 1950s one with Elizabeth Taylor, and I'm like, it's missing something, <laughs> you know, because yeah. her. I, I think the the structure that Gerwig chose. I mean, she kind of just like broke the novel, and she just like really made it her own. And uh, this movie is um, not just an adaptation of Little, Little Women, but I think it's really a metafictional um, take on the art of adaptation itself. Um, I don't if I you know when this movie came out, and I obsessed with it and tweeted about it a lot. I read and listened to so many interviews with Greta Gerwig talking about this, her her process of adapting the novel. And, you know, the research she did on the novel itself, on Louisa May Alcott, and she put, you know, her heart and soul into really reworking this movie and making it about, you know, nostalgia, making it about memory, making it about um, childhood versus adulthood, and making it about, like, you know, the commodification of art versus the reality of life. And, you know, the ending montage of, um, you know, Marmy's birthday and the book being published where you don't know which, you know, did Marmy's birthday actually happen 
or is this part of the novel? You know, did did Joe marry the professor, or was that just something that's happening in the novel? You don't know, and. You know, I found myself, every time I watch this movie, I've seen this movie four times now, and every time I watch it, I find myself being swept away by the romance in that last you know, section of the film, and then also being like, well, am I just sort of falling for that, you know, what we would now call, like, Disney happy ending, and because I'm just a pedestrian audience member who wants to see a big kiss at the end of a movie, you know? Like, she's yeah. having to think about all these things, and I, you know, I really... I'm so disappointed that so many critics or people that I love on film Twitter who I really respect really responded negatively to this movie because of the structural changes because I'm like, you know, I don't want to be insulting, but I feel like they kind of fell for the nostalgia trap. Um, And I think that this movie is really, it makes nostalgia into a theme uh, rather than just giving us, you know, another version of the 90s movie with Susan Sarandon and Winona Ryder. She's actually making us work for the nostalgia and making us really question it and think about it. And I, I you know, it's like I really, you know, tip my hat to Greta Gerwig for, um, for actually like taking a cash grab, a Christmas time cash grab, and really like actually making it self-aware and interesting. And I think also like her filmmaking is just beautiful. You know, I mean, she. Um, you know, I think I thought Lady Bird had really excellent filmmaking and visual style, uh, even for being such a talky, you know, very that seemed like a very writer's movie. And I think Little Women, she is a director's movie. I mean, it's gorgeous to behold. The editing is top notch. You know, the color palettes that switch from like the grays and blues of the present timeline to like the reds and browns and golds and yellows of the flashbacks um, just work extremely well and you know um the works that she did with amy march uh you know she totally rehabilitated that character and really fleshed her out and i think her casting is perfect um you know uh florence pugh Saoirse ronan of course my girl emma watson as my yeah. fave meg march um eliza scanlon timothy chalamet like meryl streep of course laura dern um Bob Odenkirk, like one of the best entrances of a movie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like I'm, he became a meme, right? Yeah, I'm still um, blown away that he walked into Little Women, and I just forgot he was in the movie, and I was like, Bob yeah, Odenkirk, it was the same what? Year. And he goes, My Little Women, and I melt into a thousand pieces. <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing. Oh my gosh, yeah, yeah it's uh, it, it like to your point, like it's. I I guess it it was that nostalgia thing of like they were just comparing it too much to. Uh, you know the 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 '90s um film adaptation, which I really like. I do, but, yeah, but yeah, li- definitely, but, me too. But the little, but 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 the new one, but the the Gerwig take on it is just it just asks a bit more of you as an audience. It's like, yeah, just think about these things a little bit more. Uh, I mean, to me, the the time jumps are not confusing at all. I don't know why people still think that, um, but it also asks you a lot of like what we want in a narrative and in, in a quote unquote happy ending. So I'm glad you brought all that up, Manish, because it's you're right. I'm 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 in, I'm in, I'm in agreement. So um, give it another shot, people, if you didn't like it the first time, because it's definitely worth it. Okay, Little Women. Um, why don't we jump? Why don't we jump back to twenty three? Uh, it happened one night. Frank Capra. Uh, this is one I have not seen, Manish. Uh, but I know Frank Capra. Um, and talk to me about it happened one night. So you know, um, 
I don't know if you know this about me, but I like romantic comedies. What? <laughs> this is yeah, new. I know. I know. I, I, I really don't want to like shock anyone, and I apologize if you collapse from that <laughs> news. But um, no, I love romantic comedies, and you know, there's so many I wanted to put on this list. And it happened one night. I just had to do it just because it's really the codifier of every romantic comedy trope that you love or might hate or whatever. It's 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 the origin story. It's um, so any, I think any list of any any romantic comedy fan that doesn't at least respect this movie, if not love it, um, it, I don't really, I'm not even sure I can call them a romantic comedy fan, just because this is like, this is ground zero. This is exactly like where it all began, or at least the movie that really caught, that really like collected any kind of elements of screwball romance type stuff and put it into a movie that made it into a package and delivered it and this movie influenced every romantic comedy that has ever come out of the last uh 80 years or so um you know this movie like the chemistry the um the dialogue the visuals the i mean honestly marcella like when you watch this movie you're gonna think like uh this has every trope you could ever imagine and anything that romantic comedies do now this movie did um, and in fact, so much so that when I first saw this movie in college, I didn't like it that much because I'm like, okay, who cares? <laughs> you know, like, it's kind of like when you watch an old sitcom that it was really influential, like Seinfeld or Cheers or whatever, and you're yeah. like, or like Dick Van Dyke, and you're like, okay, well, how is this groundbreaking? But, you know, you got to remember, this is 1934, so... You know, any, you know, like 10 Things I Hate About You or Moonstruck or any of those movies hadn't come out yet. And this movie was really, it's like the grandfather of all of them. Um, and like, it's just, it's so zippy, it's so charming. Um, Clark Gable and Claude Colbert are like the um, like definitive, you know, hate you to love you couple. Um, and this movie is sexy for, I mean, not even just for its time, but even like it's sexy for our standards now just because it's all suggestion, it's all innuendo. Um, and, you know, just the idea of, you know, an unmarried couple like sharing a room or sleeping in a barn or something, <laughs> like it's just like it feels hot. And um, yeah, I mean, it's just so like it's so witty. Um, this movie won like a like a lot of Oscars, like Best Picture, Best Director. I believe it won for both actors as well. Like, it was just like, you know, and it's also the kind of movie that they weren't making an important movie, you know? It's like it's like that Casablanca thing where they were just kind of like on this movie and, you know, whatever, and it just like clicked and it became this totally influential thing. Um, yeah, I mean, every, every romance movie, every comedy movie owes so much to this movie that like, you know, to me, like, how, when I'm like thinking about romantic comedies, I want to put on this list. It seemed like an obvious choice. Let me ask you this. Uh, I mean, not for those who don't know, and I, I probably mentioned this in the intro. I mean, you host you know, it Pod BU, the romantic comedy uh, podcast series. I'll talk from society. So, like when you say it's you know these romantic comedies are your favorites, you 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 mean it. Um, but when Oh, here's my question. How many romantic comedies are on your list? Because as far as I can tell, I see two, right? 
Is it or, or, or is it is it just those two? Is it it happened one night and then your number seven? Are those the only two romantic comedies on your list? Um, no, number twenty I would also count as romantic comedy. Oh, okay. Why don't we talk about twenty then? Well, let's yeah. yeah, let's talk about Gentlemen Prefer Blondes at number twenty by Howard yeah, Hawks. Yeah, this is Howard Hawks with uh, Marilyn Monroe and Jane Russell. Yeah, um, I mean, I think this is also this romantic comedy. I'm not sure. I think. You know, I, I would say this movie is kind of influential in like more of like a bridesmaids kind of legally blonde kind of way, um, just because it's very much centered around female friendships. Um, and I mean, this movie is much more of a romantic comedy than those two movies are. But um, I think like this is one of the few movies from this time period, or not one. Of, this is one of like the few really good movies from this time period that are just about like kind of women doing stuff. Um, and uh, you know I love Marilyn Monroe like she's she's one of those people that I'm like as someone who loves classic Hollywood like you gotta put a Marilyn Monroe movie on this list and mm-hmm. for me this is the one that really uh, understands her persona and captures her strengths as an as a performer um, and as a movie star and as a person um, because like you know she's playing the dumb kind of gold digging blonde in this movie but it's very much a performance that she's putting on for the men that she's trying to marry so she can, you know, get, you know, get their riches. And she's doing that because that's the only way she knows how to really elevate her own status. You know, the, I, you know, I think for someone like her to go into her own career, I don't even think that it might, I don't even know if she would know how to do that just because of her looks and her personality and, you know, and Jane Russell as her best friend, like, the two of them have such a really strong chemistry, and they're just so funny, and this movie just, like, lets them be funny, and um, they're such perfect matches, because, like, in a lesser movie, they would, like, be hate, like, they would hate each other, or Jane Russell's character would resent Marilyn Monroe for, you know, getting all this male attention, but really, they just complement each other so in so many ways, like, um, you know, Marilyn Monroe becomes a little bit more grounded and Jane Russell becomes a little bit more like risk-taking and kind of goofy. Um, and this movie as a musical like has really great numbers. You know, of course, Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend is iconic. Um, and this movie has some really great set pieces, a lot of really good physical comedy and really good um, one kind of like one-liners and kind of sarcastic quips. And I think it also like Howard Hawks, like... You know, he's one of those, like, old Hollywood guys that are just, like, so influential, did movies in, like, a million different genres that even I'm surprised that, like, John Prefer Blondes is from him because, like, I think of him as, like, westerns and, you know, dramas and noir and stuff. But, you know, he did this, like, really very, like, I think a really girly, kind of fun, cute comedy that's actually, like, really intelligent in terms of, like, breaking down, um, you know, Marilyn Monroe's persona. And uh, even something like Sun Like It Hot, which is a, a classic, excellent movie, but there, you know, I think Mel, it doesn't really capture what makes Marilyn Monroe so um, alluring as a performer. And I think, you know, this movie, she's the protagonist, she's the main character, and Sun Like It Hot, she's an object. You know, she's like the object is she's the love interest. So. Right. 
Yeah, Gentlemen Before Blondes. Have you seen this movie? I have not seen Gentlemen Before Blondes. Oh no. man, you gotta. It's just like it's so it's just it's charming. It's funny. It's you know, you could write a thesis paper on it, but it's also like extremely entertaining. Barely ninety minutes long too. Um, yeah, I, yeah I, it's, just, it's a great musical. I'm gonna add this to uh, my watch list. I, I need to definitely watch more musicals. It's like it's been one genre in the last few years that I've realized I have not gotten yeah. into for whatever reason. So this year I've been catching up on a lot of musicals I've missed, and I'll put this on the list. I'll watch it. I'll watch it. Um, actually, one I saw for the first time a few years ago that I crossed off my list because it was a big blind spot in terms of musicals. Uh, is your number 18 we'll jump to that singing in the rain uh, oh yeah which i kicked to myself for not seeing you know sooner because that movie yeah is, it's still incredible uh it strangely has become like a movie that i will just like put on when i'm like trying to go to sleep um and i've seen it so many times actually same with gentleman for blondes like they're both in my like movies anywhere library and whenever i'm just like i want to watch a movie while i'm falling asleep but i don't want it to be anything too like intense i just put those two on but that's not to say that sitting in the rain is insubstantial or just like fluffy or whatever like i I think that's pretty pretty strong commentary on hollywood and uh it's um machinations and what i think actually holds up today i presume and Again, it's really funny. Really has some really strong um, comic set pieces. Uh, I think its use of um, audio and video kind of synchronization or lack thereof, or like just, like ironic juxtaposition, is really smart. Um, I think the dance numbers are just so imaginative. Like they each have their own little concept, whether it's like the make and laugh or. Um, Lucky Star or, you know, the, um, the dance ballet and stuff, like the interlude. Um, you know, it's just so, it's so smart. It's funny. You know, Gene Kelly is obviously an icon of, like, sort of musical dancing. Um, Debbie Reynolds is cute as a button and so just adorable. You know, uh, O'Connor is hilarious. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, uh, Gene Hagen as Lena Lamont is, I think, like, an incredible comic performance, um, not nominated for an Academy Award, uh, rightfully so. Um, yeah, I think this movie is just, like, it's I, similar to It Happened One Night, where this movie is just, like, influential. And, you know, any musical, especially in the 50s and 60s, is influenced by this movie. And I think even now, you know, you have like Joseph Gordon-Levitt types trying to kind of redo that when they're trying to do musicals or yeah. um, I mean I don't know if you ever did a musical but like there was a time when like he and Zoe Deschanel were trying to be like an old Hollywood couple like in the 500 Days of Summer era oh yeah yeah I mean even, um, and, and, and one thing I remember is him doing that on SNL like when he hosted yeah, he, he yeah. did like a, a um, did, Singing in the Rain he did make him laugh yeah yeah uh, but even like La La Land, of course, oh, yeah. is inspired. I mean, these are very obvious influences, right? But um, I, I just think Singing in the Rain, like, it's um, it could be so many different things. It can be a romance. It can be a Hollywood satire. It can be a comfort movie. It can be kind of a cynical look at, you know, Hollywood chasing, you know, technological fads and trying to appease audiences. Um, it can be, you know, Hollywood politics. Um so, 
yeah, I think it's really it's a really smart movie. Um, I, I just really, I just think it's so funny. I think it still it holds up as an incredibly funny and you know intelligent film. Yeah. Have you seen In the Heights yet, Manish? I just saw it last night, actually. What do you think? Uh, I really, I loved a lot of it. Like the musical numbers, I thought were. I mean, similar to Sing in the Rain, like each musical number had its own identity. Yeah, that's you know? that's what I was going to bring up and because, like, you know, I love In the Heights overall, but it's like those musical numbers in, in In the Heights that sort of remind me of like why I really love musicals. Like now that I'm watching a lot yeah. more of them recently, and that's why I love Singing in the Rain is because it makes like those moments in those musicals like unique to each musical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I, I think like. Um, I think a lot of, like, I would say 2010s musicals, like, in some ways try to hide being a musical, or they're yeah. just so, like, um, or they're just so, like, they want to be campy that it's like, well, this now I'm just feeling like you, like, even like the Mamma Mia movies, which I like a lot, but I'm like, those aren't really, try- those are just trying to be, like, crowd pleasers. But, and I think, like, La La Land, I love La La Land, and I think it, I think each musical number in that movie has its own identity as well, but I think there's like one or two songs missing in La La Land. Oh yeah. And I think in the Heights, like because it's almost nonstop music, I'm like, this feels like a proper movie musical from the 1950s, 1960s era, where it's like there's a musical number every five minutes. There's a lot of singing, a lot of dancing. Every every number has its own thing, and you know I can. I might not remember every line of music from In the Heights or Sing in the Rain, but I can remember being like, well, I love the Carnival video. I mean, the Carnival sequence. I love the, you know, the public pool song. I love the, you know, it's like, it's, it sticks in your memory because each thing is trying to be its own thing and everything is unique and there's so much dancing and livelihood. There's an ensemble, an actual ensemble there to support the, these musical numbers where it feels big. And, um, I think Sing in the Rain really does that, especially in the Broadway melody interlude, um, where it just feels like feels like a production, like you're watching it on stage, except the camera is moving so much that you it captures every every inch of that set. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, it's I, I I like it a lot in the Heights, but I also think you know moments where they're dancing on like the side of the building. I just it's, it instantly thought, oh, singing in the rain, like it. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that's how like still influential singing in the rain is. It's it it still has to be in the conversation of like yes, it's like one of the best that's ever done it. So um, yeah, why don't we go back? Because uh, I skipped this one. Uh, you're number 21. I have not heard of this one, Manish, and I cannot pronounce it, but I will try. Sholay? Uh, Sholay? Yeah, that's right. Yes. Talk, uh, talk yeah. about this one. Yeah. Um, you know, Sholay is uh, just a classic Bollywood movie. Um, similar to what we were just talking about, where influence of this movie is in like a lot just in almost every movie you could think of with Bollywood um I, I mean okay Sholay is a movie that really codified a, a genre within Bollywood filmmaking or at least popularized it you know kind of distilled it into one film which is the Masala movie and Masala movies are a genre where um 
that it, it consists of like a few different genres. So like comedy, like a musical, romance, action, suspense, drama, like uh, sometimes even some like political, you know, elements are in there. Um, and the the point of a masala movie is that it has everything in it so that there's something for everyone. And they're usually over three hours long so that you feel like you got your money's worth. Um, so, because you know, going to see a movie, much like in America, is very expensive in India. So you want to have a movie that has everything so that it can be like an afternoon well spent yeah. um, for pure entertainment. And Shole is just like one of those movies that um, it's so classic, so many classic lines. Um, the songs are all really popular. The actors are, you know... Um, huge stars for the 1970s this movie is 1975 um and um yeah it's just so it's just it's classic like um it's like it's it's like influence so influential like i would call shole like maybe i don't know the citizen kane of bollywood in some ways ah. or the like um, that even, even that doesn't feel right. Like Star Wars, maybe, where it's just like this is just like pure entertainment and launched, you know, copycats for decades to come. You know, we're still getting movies that are very much influenced by Shole. Um, and, you know, the villain is a classic villain. Um, the heroes are like archetypes now. The, the heroine, like the women in the film, are archetypes now. And it's just like. You know, it's, I mean, it's three and a half hours long. It's streaming on Amazon Prime currently. I'm, like, praying for a Criterion release, but I think, I don't I don't know who has the rights for it, but, like, it, it needs to have that kind of, like, um, introduction to a global audience um, or an American audience just because I think a lot of, like, I feel like you and I have a lot of friends who would love this movie. I think you would love this movie when you get the chance to see it. Mm. Um yeah, I'm. I'm because I think I'm sold like, already. By the way, <laughs> yeah, like yeah. you know, it, it reminds me like it's like a Seven Samurai type, you know, where ah, it's okay. like this movie is just was meant to be like. Well, my speculation with Seven Samurai was that it was just it wasn't really meant to be this like huge art house classic, right? It was just like a pop, like an entertainment, entertaining mainstream movie from Kurosawa. Is that right? right? I don't know. I think I, but, I think like, so. It just like, becomes yeah. this like. It becomes this entry point for people for Japanese cinema. People are writing essays on it. It you know it becomes esteemed, and I think Strolle has a lot of the same potential for that. Um, whenever you know it gets on Criterion Channel or in the collection itself, like or any of these labels like Shout or Kino or whatever, if any of these movies, the labels pick it up and introduces it to a Western audience or an American audience, I think it would be really successful because it's so viscerally entertaining. Um, but it has a lot of, uh, you know, essays can be written about its political undertones. Like, it's actually a movie about, like, um, harmony in villages and, um, you know, religious harmony and sort of fear of um, outsider forces. Like, I mean, I think the Seven Samurai comparison is really um, effective here because of that, because it's just, like, it's just a good, like, rollicking good time, but there's so much, like, meat to the film and it earns every uh, like actually my dad was just watching it and it's just like it's so watchable because as long as it is like things are always happening it actually has a very extensive plot like it's always moving um whether it i mean again like it's 
whether it's the plot of any of these genres, like the romance is always moving, the action is always moving, the suspense part of it is always moving, like there's just a lot going on. And um, yeah, I think it's like, I'm, I'm just like waiting for it to become more well-known in, in America because I think it would have like a really strong audience here. Oh yeah, I, I'm excited to watch it uh, because this yeah. is definitely one... I have not even heard of. I think until I saw it on your list, Malish. So, you've you've informed me about this, and so (laughs) now I'm like, yes, I'm gonna share it with the world too. Uh, Or actually, this episode will share with with the world, right? Because the world listens to this to this podcast. Yeah, 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 I'm pretty sure. Like, actually, I think I think Criterion is listening. Um, make the effort to fight for the licensing of this movie because I think it would fly off the shelves if they if they released it. In the last episode, it was funny because um, Jacob De Noble was uh, was joking about Edgar Wright listening to the podcast because uh, Jacob <laughs> Jacob wants to fight Edgar Wright. So I'm happy to know Edgar Wright and Criterion are listening to this podcast. Thank you. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, speaking of somebody who has been on a podcast, that's not the best segue. Uh, Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> He doesn't know when to shut up, but his movies are great. Um, <laughs> Jackie Brown at 19 from 1997. Uh, I know you have a big affinity for this. I love this movie too. Um, and was this one difficult for you to pick a favorite Tarantino? And I, oh, I should also say, I mean, you've written about Tarantino before on Talk From Society. You've written about Kill Boy Volume 2. So uh, I know you like his work. So was it hard to pick one? Yeah, it was hard to pick between this movie, um, Inglorious Bastards, and Kill Bill. Yeah. Um, partially because I never know whether to consider Kill Bill one movie or two movies. Um, I think a case could be made for either decision. Um, I think if I had to pick one of the two to be on this list, it would be Kill Bill Volume 2. Um but then, yeah, but I think I ultimately went with Jackie Brown just because um, I it's more of a romance than the other movies are. And I think it's a little bit more sophisticated and grounded and um, adult yeah. than his other movies. Um, and it's the one that I think shows, like, I, I love how much is, how much of it is about age and weariness and I think a lot of those themes are in his other films as well like I think there's a lot of weariness in Kill Bill Volume 2 you know with the bride just being kind of like I gotta keep doing this until I get to my destination and I love that but there's just something so tired about Jackie Brown the character in the film which I I find so interesting to look at um you know it's fascinating to think about this movie coming out right after pulp fiction and sort of having this muted response because people wanted more of the pulp fiction thing and i think there's very little of the pulp fiction thing in jackie brown and to me that shows such a such a clarity of vision from tarantino that this movie feels so much like tarantino without doing any of the tricks that he did in pulp fiction and um, I, know, I just like I, Pam Greer, you know, not just to add to the chorus of praise for her in this movie and for her as as an actress in general. She gives such a mature performance here. Um, Robert Forster as well. Like I think their chemistry um, 
is so strong in this movie. Actually, I wrote about this movie when we did our Tarantino. Um, oh, that's right. Countdown. Yeah. Uh, countdown. And I, I mean, I like this is a movie that I would like love to talk about on the podcast because I think it's, it's his most romantic movie. I mean, I can't even think of any other movie that comes close to this level of like actual human like affectionate relationships that you know even the ones that are more antagonistic like you know with Samuel Jackson and um Robert De Niro like it's still there's so much history between these characters and even with Bridget Fonda as well like um and even this like the side characters of the agents and the the woman that they use in the heist and Chris Tucker yes Chris Tucker yeah Chris Tucker like even like there's just like these people just have relationships with each other and you know I'm really what I love about Tarantino is that like what he learned from this movie he took to his subsequent career because um, I, I feel the same way about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood um, which is that like this movie is like both of these movies are really about relationships and I think Kill Bill is too is, Kill Bill Volume 2 especially is about relationships in a way that I think other movies really aren't even the ones that I find to be masterpieces like Pulp Fiction and um, Inglourious Bastards and uh, uh, Death Proof like I I mean I, I really don't dislike any of his movies except for me Reservoir Dogs which I think I just it's too male for me yeah um but uh, I think that, like, all of his movies are about relationships, but I think there's such a, like, um, there's just such a, like, connection in Jackie Brown between these people. Um, and it's such an unusual movie uh, just because, like, I just think the, the visual aesthetic of it is just so muted for Tarantino. Even when he's doing, like, the Tarantino thing, like, you know, the mall heist and everything, like it works because like his characters are really just like worn down in a really endearing and fascinating way um but there's so it's just like it just feels less like tarantino on overdrive and that makes it unique among his films which is why i like it the most even though i love the overdrive stuff you know i could watch you know, Kill Bill Volume One a million times, and I, I have them be memorized. Yeah. But and but the the reason why I love Jackie Brown and Kill Bill Volume Two and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is that it really slows down. I mean, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood like slows down to almost three hours long, and I could watch, again watch a movie a million times. Um, but there's just such a like, um, I don't know. There's just such a like race to this movie to Jackie Brown and I, I find that to be um, just so alluring and fascinating and beautiful and that's why that's why this it's on the list yeah it, it Jackie Brown always sticks with me um, because I'm fascinated of how like it, it feels like Tarantino like would have directed this like as his last movie. Like if yeah. if Jackie Brown didn't exist as it was in ninety seven and he made it as like his tenth and final film, like he's always talking about, like he'll make one more. Yeah. It'd be yeah. it'd be like a perfect ending to his career. Cause that movie right, is right. about like getting old, like moving on, you know, having these relationships and you know, it might not work and, and it and just 
yeah, it, it says so much about just getting old and like uh, living your life that I'm still surprised he made it like so early on in his career. But I think it's because, yes, he understands characters and he gave a lot to, you know, Pam Greer and Robert Forrester and the entire cast that it just felt so like alive with these vibrant characters. I mean, yeah. It's so, yeah, and, like when he's working with, you know, these middle aged actors, I mean, like he's always kind of been a career resurgence guy, yeah. you know? Of course, I mean, even as far back as Reservoir Dogs. Um, but just, like, working with someone like Jack Pam Greer, who just, like, you know, of course she was so famous in the 70s, but she didn't really, like, did much any, anything too major in the 80s or 90s. Like, I think she kind of had her time, and then this movie really resurrected her career. And same with Robert Forster, I don't know that well either, but um, these guys just, like, they're just so wary. They're so world-weary. And... That's also the reason why I love What's Behind in Hollywood, and I think that's such a mature movie, too, is that, like, you got Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio, whose careers didn't stall, but, like, they're kind of at the, the latter half of their middle-aged years, yeah. and Brad Pitt especially is someone that just does not seem to be interested in being a, you know, heartthrob anymore, even though he still is, but, like, <laughs> he doesn't seem to be wanting to do that, like, movie star thing. So it makes sense for him to be in that movie. And, you know, then contrast that with sort of Margot Robbie as this, like, spectral angel of youth. <laughs> you know, and it really highlights the, like, weariness in Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt in that movie. So I think that, like, he's really at his best, Tarantino, when he's, like, exploring this, like, weariness of sort of life after the heyday. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up because I was just watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood um, on mute in the background as I worked last night. And hey, yeah. that movie, like I saw that like seven times in theaters like in yeah. 2019 and like I could watch it again. It's um, I'm just it's still in shock of just how great it ended up being. And um, yeah, and, and I say all that. I love Jackie Brown and I love Kill Bill, um, all those movies, but I'm going to end up. Be, uh, going with Bastards for my Tarantino on my list because that one I'll talk more about that later like when I make my list and when I uh, talk when I'm gonna talk about it on my episode but uh, yeah I was gonna say I really would love for you to do your like be interviewed by someone on your yeah, list yeah I, 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 I've been thinking about that I don't know who it's gonna end up interviewing me but maybe I'll interview myself maybe that'll be the, the best thing I can do <laughs> I, mean, I would love that <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I just have such connection with Bastards I I can yeah, say so much yeah. about it. I've written a, a bit about it for Talk From Society on that list mm-hmm, you, yeah. you you mentioned, Manish. But, man, that movie just holds so much power for me. That, uh, yeah, as, absolutely. As, yeah, but, uh, but again, it's one of those where it's like, honestly, he is like a Kubrick or Hitchcock, you know. For me, anyway, it's hard to pick just the one. But yeah, uh, yeah. they're all so close. They're all so close. Um Okay, so that was Jackie Brown. Why don't we go to... Why don't we jump to 17? Another one I have not seen that you can tell me about, Manish. Another one I hope to pronounce correctly. Uh, Vir Zara from 2004? Yeah, Vir Zara, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah so... Um, this movie, like... It just has a power over me. Uh, it's another romance, but very much a rom like a um, traditional like romantic epic um, directed by one of my favorite Indian filmmakers Yash Chopra he is um, well he was well I don't he's 
he passed away in 2012, but um, he is like someone I really look up to as another influential filmmaker in terms of romance for me. And, you know, he's made so many classic movies starting in the 1950s through the 2010s. Um, and, uh, but the reason why I chose Virazada is that it's just like, um, if you've ever, like, this movie was, like, so influential for me in high, when I saw it in high school when it came out. And it really shaped a lot of my taste. And I don't think I even realized it until, like, few years ago when you know this movie popped up on Amazon Prime and I hadn't seen it in a while and I found myself or maybe it was on Netflix but I found myself watching it like multiple times in a month which is not, not something I really do like I try not to re-watch movies too, over and over again too close together unless it's for an article or something um, but you know especially back then when like I really wasn't writing that much uh, this is pre-talking society days, uh, but this movie, like, you know, it's about all these things that I love when movies are about, like love, sacrifice, you know, duty and honor. Um, it's about this um, this guy, this like um, air force uh, air force guy uh, in India who uh, meets this girl from Pakistan when she's in India to um, do the last rites for her, um, for the woman who raised her, uh, who was from India, but um, was ended up in Pakistan during the partition and kind of raised this young woman. And they sort of develop this friendship that kind of becomes like a really unspoken love between the two of them and she's engaged to someone else so she goes back to Pakistan and he um, goes to Pakistan to kind of rescue her from her arranged marriage and just this you know it just becomes this really empathetic really compassionate romance um, that's really respectful of both India and Pakistan like the conflict between India and Pakistan has led to so many really disgusting movies about Pakistan that get, where it's become really villainized and treated so horribly. And this movie is just so has so much heart for this conflict that, um, and the, like this movie is hardly even about the India and this movie is about the India Pakistan conflict, but in such a really subtle way that it's not really like it just feels like. Um, that harmony and unity between these two countries is, is possible, and um, that it really shouldn't matter if uh, you know if a couple, one part of a couple is in India, the other was in Pakistan. It shouldn't matter, and um, yeah, and I, I think this movie is like really subversively feminist uh. um, in a way that I re- don't think I even realized um, until it was pointed out to me in this really amazing Twitter thread that I owe so much of my love for this movie to. That I read a couple years ago, um, just because it really articulated why I love this movie in ways I don't even didn't even realize. Uh, just because, like, it reverses a lot of um, like kind of princess and locked tower tropes. It reverses that in a really fun way. And the um, the male character played by Bollywood icon Shah Rukh Khan is so different to this woman and doesn't impose himself on her in any way or even like speak for her um and it allows the 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 woman zara played by Zinta, to really have so much agency and she's so um 
Even for someone who's kind of trapped in this patriarchal family, she exhibits so much personality and so much um, willfulness and has such a self-assuredness um, and really doesn't really need to be rescued. I don't, it's, it's really hard to talk about this movie without really going into like a lot of the plot, but um, I really don't want to talk about the plot too much. Uh, but, but I also think this movie has such a really beautiful scope to it. It has such lush photography, um, really sensitive, charged performances. Um, the dialogue is really poetic. The music is lovely. Um, and, you know, the second half of this movie is incredibly poignant and, and impactful. And um, the first half is too, but, you know, the first half is a, just, it's a lot of it is just their little mini courtship. That's not really a courtship because they don't know what that's what it is, but then it becomes that. But the second half is when this love story just gets to new heights. Um, and this movie is over three hours long. Um, but again, like much like Shole, it earns that time because there's so much going on in this movie. There's so much, there's so much plot to it, um, and it, this movie has an incredible like structure to it. I just, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. I could watch it a million times. I've written about this movie, um, and uh, supporting performances are incredibly strong. Uh, this is a movie that's like populated by really amazing Bollywood actors who are overqualified for the roles that they have, but because Yash Chopra is such a legend that he can just kind of get... He's like a Scorsese in that, like, people will just show up to be in his movie for, like, five minutes. Hmm. Uh, but, it's, it, but it's worth it because, like, the characters are really engaging and the... Um, the dialogue is just really smart. Yeah, it's, just, it's an incredible movie. I really, you know... Um, if my description of it has been any way coherent and interesting to you, I really do recommend it because it's it's just beautiful. Listen, I'm convinced. <laughs> <laughs> you got one. Okay, good. Yeah. Okay, uh, the next one. It's one I know you have affection for the movie and the director, and one I have just put on my watch list for this month that I promise I will see. Um, actually, I'll say that about another one on your list, too, later on. Uh, Brokeback Mountain at 16, directed by Ang Lee. Um, again, I have I don't know why I haven't seen this. You'd think I would at this point. But I don't know, it's, it's, I can't even give a good, reason, uh, like a good excuse as to why I haven't seen this yet. But I'll see it. I will. Manish, I'm talking to you. I will see it. <laughs> So talk about Bro- I believe you. Yeah, talk about Brokeback Mountain. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, Ang Lee is Ang Lee. Um, he's like my he's my one of my Mount Rushmore guys. Um, all of whom are on this list. I think he's the first appearance of. Uh, oh no, second. Yes, Dropra is also a Mount Rushmore guy. So these two together are two of the Mount Rushmore guys. Um, but you know, like. Similarly, with like the Tarantino or um, you know the Hitchcock, as we get into that, and Almodovar, as we get to that, like I didn't know how to pick the Ang Lee movie, and going back and forth between at least four of them: uh, Brokeback, Life of Pi, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and Sense Sensibility. I didn't know how to pick between those four. I mean, how do you pick between those four, right? Like, they're all five-star masterpieces, in my opinion. Uh, But I went with Brokeback because um, 
It just honestly is partially nostalgia because it was probably my first. It wasn't my first Ang Lee movie. I had seen Hulk, but it was the first time that I had really uh, kind of knew who Ang Lee was as a person. Yeah. And I don't think I saw Hulk and kind of knew that was Ang Lee, um, but. Only because I didn't know who Ang Lee was, but when I saw Brokeback, I, I knew. And also, this was like the first gay movie I saw in theaters when I was 16 years old. Mm. And I snuck out of the house to go see it. Well, I lied to my parents. Wow. But what I was seeing, because I was very deeply closeted. <laughs> so, did you? Did, I was afraid that if I... Did yeah. you tell them you're watching something else? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah, we're just going to go see... Oh, I wish I could remember what it was. I was going to ask, like, what, what, what movie came out 2005 at the same time as Brokeback Mountain? Seven 2005 I don't know um it might have been I can look uh, it up <laughs> yeah I I don't know what it was but um yeah I, I forgot what it was but it's something something silly that I probably would not have seen anyway um because I was like if I lie and say a movie that I want to see and then I go see that then I have to lie again <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, you know, I think Brokeback Mountain is obviously a um, like canon queer movie for because it was, um, I think, an extremely mainstream movie. Like it crossed over into mainstream. Like it was a huge hit at the box office, and of course, Oscar favorite. Um, introduced so many incredible actors, you know, into these kind of major stars like. Michelle Williams and Heath Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal and Anne Hathaway like all of them had been working before but I think this was like kind of the first kind of adult movie that they had been in and even like Kate Mara's in this movie uh, David Harbour's in this movie like Anna Ferris is in this movie like oh yeah like when you watch this movie Marcelo you're gonna um it's going to be a lot of like, oh, wow, this person was in this movie before they were that person. Yeah, yeah. And uh, especially like Anna Ferris, Like, it was just weird to see. It's weird seeing her now. Because like, I just watched the entire series of Mom. <laughs> and and um, right around when I was watching this movie again, and I was like, oh, my God, that's Anna Ferris. <laughs> like, uh, but and the, 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 the thing that I really cherish about this movie is actually its editing. Um, because it it covers like almost three decades of time, if well maybe like tw- two to three decades of time, um, but its editing is so crisp that it passage of time because of the theme in the movie and how much time is wasted in this in this idea of like denying who you want to be with and not even just denying but like not even knowing that this love is a possibility and. This movie is, it's like, um, it, you know, it kind of has that thing where it's um, every, like, every other place but Brokeback Mountain, they have to be a certain way. But in Brokeback Mountain, it's like this, like, you know, parallel dimension where they can just go and kind of be who they are and be with each other. Right. And um, I, I, I find that to be, in some ways, very romantic and very tragic. Um, and this movie is very sad. Um, you know, I don't want to spoil that for you, but I think it's kind of famous for being a very sad movie. But there's also just so much life to it. You know, the performances are really strong. I think Ang Lee, his filmmaking, I mean, he won Best Director for this. Um, 
and her movie that could very much well be seen as not a director's movie because it's very still and very um you know very somber like his filmmaking is just i mean just so gorgeous and meaningful and impactful and so subtle um, and of course, the the mountain itself looks idyllic in a way that feels very like Western. Like it's not like, you know, it's not like the Call Me by Your Name villa where it's like this like you know Eden. It's just, but it's like, you know, because it has kind of a rocky terrain. It's not very green. It's kind of ugly, but it just feels like a whole new like magical place just because it was the place for them. And uh, this movie really sells that that concept. Like some movies try to do that and it doesn't work, but this movie works really well. Um, and the ending is just like perfect ending. Like it's just so heartbreaking. Um, yeah. yeah. So I, I, yeah. <laughs> honestly, I can't wait. And, and maybe by the end, uh, oh, yeah, hopefully by the end of um, at least this month, I'll get a chance to see it. Uh, I, I, it's on my list. Yeah, I believe uh, it's on Amazon Prime. Yeah, and I, I, I did uh, eventually. I did buy the the iTunes version of it too, just in case. Okay. So yeah, I, I have that. Yeah. Okay. Um, early December of two thousand five. Here are the movies that came out. Um, that's that I'm just, I want to jog your memory of like what movie you told your parents you were seeing yeah. instead of Broke Red Mountain. So, Aeon Flux came out. No. Chronicles of Narnia: The Lion, the Witch, the Road, the Wardrobe. No, because I definitely wanted to see that. Syriana. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, mm, I don't think so. Let's go back to late November. Pride and Prejudice. I'm sure you wanted to see that though. Yeah, definitely not. Uh, Rent. <laughs> uh, no. Just Friends. Maybe it was just Maybe friends. it was just friends. Okay, maybe it was that one. It might have been Aeon Flux, actually. Maybe Aeon Flux. And it might have been January 2006, too. Because, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. This was... Um, definitely this might have been a movie I saw after it came out. So Gotcha, gotcha. So, um, we'll, 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 yeah. we'll never get to the bottom of this. So <laughs> Sorry, folks. I mean, it's like 15 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, okay. Burke Brink Mountain. I, okay, again, I'll see it. Um, why don't we go to the next one, number 15, another one I, I, I have not heard of. So please tell me about this, Manish. Uh, and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly again. Uh, Salam Bombay. Yeah, Salam Bombay. This is actually a very um, new entry into this list. I mean, this movie is like from 1988, but um, I hadn't seen this movie uh, at all until this past January. Um, and I watched it like six times this year, which is again something I don't do. But um, I, it's such an interestingly filmed movie. Um, I really couldn't. I was like, became obsessed with it randomly. I became obsessed with it in April, um, and I watched it many, many times. Uh, but um, the reason why I became so obsessed with it is because um, it has this really enchanting score it's really like melancholy unique score um and this you know salam bombay is not really a bollywood movie i I wouldn't really call it one even though it pays homage to bollywood in really interesting ways but it's a you know it's about this um young boy who is kind of living and working in the slums of bombay uh he's a he's a tea delivery boy around this sort of this neighborhood and he um is living near a brothel and becomes sort of involved with the other street kids in the area and 
this movie is really about sort of this tapestry of life in this in these sort of like slum poor neighborhood. Um, directed by Mir Nair, who has become one of my favorite filmmakers this year. Uh, you know, she's made movies like Queen of Katway and The Namesake and Monsoon Wedding. Um, and this is her first movie. And I, I think what I find to be so fascinating about this movie is how much she, like, had to fight to make it. Like, she was raising money for it as she was shooting it. Um, she had to improvise because she would run out of money sometimes. Um, she shot on location in all these kind of, like, really shady areas of Bombay. <laughs> Like drug, like where drug deals would happen at night or in brothels, and um, but this movie is so um, it's so humanistic, it's so empathetic, it's um, doesn't condescend to you know these sort of um, homeless or poor kids like certain other movies about the same topic that have won Oscars does, um, and um, so it's. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, Mira Nair is such an elegant filmmaker. Um, I've seen a lot of her movies before, but this year I, I really just kind of like buckled down and watched everything I could find of hers. And, um, you know, her filmmaking in Salon Bombay is incredibly visually exciting. Um, she really, like, um, she does this really cool thing with this movie in that a lot of it is in, in, in inspired by interviews and workshops she did with actual, like, homeless kids, or, like, street kids in Bombay, a lot of whom were cast in the movie, kind of playing versions of themselves. But, and, and you know, but alongside her ver- verite style, she has such a visual flourish to her. And, um, you know, this movie is just so, like, you know, it has this really real elegance to it. And uh, despite sort of the very tough conditions she made the film in, like, you know, having no money for it and dealing with, you know, she was shooting on the street, so whatever was happening on the street was in the movie. Like, there were no extras. It was just people, like, living their lives. Um, there, Like, I watched the movie with her commentary, and she said that, like, um, in one shot, she could see like a woman, like a prostitute, giving a man a blowjob, and so she had to like go down and see like if they could like leave. <laughs> but the madam of the brothel wouldn't let it because she's like, "Well, this is like I got this is our living. We have to do it." So they had to like makeshift put a sheet, uh, like around them so that you couldn't see them in the window. <laughs> wow! <laughs> um, and uh, every time I come, every time I, cro- I come across that scene in the movie, it, it makes me laugh because I'm like imagining like some like random guy getting a, a blowjob <laughs> but it's like it's that kind of like thing where she just like you know she really had to um like adapt herself to whatever conditions she could she had and i find that to be extremely brave and interesting and you know her love for these characters and you know uh Mira and i are like she created a, a trust that still exists to this day to support you know, the kids that are in the movie and subsequent kids after, because she was like, I don't want to just make a movie that plays to the West and then forget about these kids who helped me do it. Like, I want to actually, like, put in some structure in in place for them. And that trust is still running, that foundation is still running to this day. Oh, wow. um, Yeah, apparently it's very successful. Um, And uh, I think that's what's, you know, her, I think her altruistic... um, 
uh, altruistic goals for this movie is what separates it from you know a Slumdog Millionaire or a Lion or a City of God. Because I think like Slumdog Millionaire especially feels like a movie where these people just kind of were like, hey, let's kind of like do this thing where we look at poor people in India and then we can win an Oscar and then, you know, start working on Steve Jobs or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, you know, I love Danny Boyle. No, I mean, I think Slumdog Millionaire is a blip on his career. Um, I respect him a lot as a filmmaker, but it's, you know, that's what happened with Slumdog Millionaire. Like, he never won. I don't think he ever cast Dave Patel again. So, um, so it's like, okay, whatever. But I think Mia Nair is always kind of, she always had it in her mind that she like had to like really do right by these kids with this movie. And it shows like, I don't, I mean, I'm also from a privileged background, so I don't know, but it doesn't feel like exploitative poverty porn. It feels very human and heartfelt. And this movie is very angry at sort of the systems that don't support these kids. So um, I this movie is extremely hard to find. I could only get it from like I got a DVD off eBay. Uh, like there has a this is another movie that would be great for the Criterion Collection or any of these labels because um, I think it's such a it's such a beautiful movie. Like it's so well made. It's so it's funny in, in weird ways. It's very sad, but um, and the characters are just so engaging and and like messy and flawed and real um and there's such an empathy for them even the ones who are more villainous you know like or or more like selfish or whatever they're just there's a hint there's always a hint of the people behind sort of these archetypes that we might have seen in other other films yeah um I just looked it up. It is going for thirty bucks on DVD on Amazon. So, yeah, yeah. it's hard to come by because uh, it seems like it's out of print. Um, the DVD, anyway. So, yes, hopefully, it gets on the streaming service. You know, it's obvious that not obvious. You know, you'd think it'd be obvious for some place like Criterion Channel or Criterion to you know pick this up and uh, uh, have it out there. But you know, we'll see. Who knows? Maybe maybe that'll happen. Hopefully. Okay, why don't we do uh, two more, and then we'll take a break. Um, so number 14 is Get Out from 2017 by Jordan Peele. And number 13 is American Psycho from 2000 from uh, Mary Heron. Um, I like how these two are paired together, uh, the similarities between them. But so distinct, though. Um, why don't we start with Get Out? Actually, I have Get Out on in the background, because I like to have a movie on the background as I do these things. And I figured, you know, why not watch get out again because uh, it, it, it can't you i think you and i have talked about this or i've seen you mention it manish that year 2017 that was a hell of a year for for movies overall i mean yeah, yeah like the i have such fond memories of that year i have fond memories of this oscar race like it was a, an awesome oscar race like when i look back at the best picture lineup like there's really only one or two movies that I really am like don't want it that I don't want to be there. But even <laughs> then, like they made for like good like Oscar villains. Like I thought yeah. there were like three billboards and Darkest Hour. I'm like I don't like these movies, but like I'm glad they're here because like whatever. Like we kind of need that. But like every other nominee in this year, I will go to bat for. Well, one I would feel a little icky about going to bat for now, thanks to the actor who's in it. But um, call on your name, which I already mentioned. Oh yeah. Um, but um, I mean, even like, but it, you know, we have Get Out, Lady Bird, Phantom Thread, Dunkirk, Shape of Water. Like, I mean, come on, <laughs> like all of which are just like 
going to become classic movies um, if they haven't already become so. And um, oh, I just realized I don't have Christopher Nolan on here either. Um, speaking of Dunkirk. Uh, anyway, oh no! Uh, well, do, yeah. do, do, do you know what's funny? I don't. I, I don't think in the this is the fourth or fifth one I've done. I don't yeah. think. I don't think anybody has put a Christopher Nolan movie on their top twenty-five, oh, wow. which is interesting. I probably probably would have put either Inception, Dunkirk, or Interstellar. Yeah, I, I love. I think those are my three faves. Yeah, I'll just quickly say like. I don't think one is going to be on my list, but if I, but the closest one that might be on my list from Nolan would be Inception or Memento, yeah. either one of those. Yeah, but I any, think Inception is his masterpiece. I think so too. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, um, but yeah, I think you know, Get Out. Like, um, I saw the movie twice in theaters thanks to Movie Pass, and <laughs> I've seen it like five times since then. Like, I, I think much like this, I think this movie is like the closest that we get to like elevated horror being like the sixth sense where it's like not only is it really intelligent and smart and has a lot to say about a lot of different topics but it's just like a purely entertaining movie like it's funny it's scary it's um upsetting it's dramatic it's surprising like it it has such a i mean it's one of the best screenplays i i haven't had the pleasure to read the screenplay but it's an incredibly crafted film, like structurally. It's so smart. It's so funny. Um, and I know it was controversially put in musical comedy at the Golden Globes. Uh, I think it makes sense in comedy. Does it make sense in drama too? Like it's so many different genres at once. Um, I would even want to talk about this movie in terms of its romantic relationships and talk about it on my podcast. Uh, Cause I think the romance in this movie, I mean, it's, I don't know if I'd call it a romance, but the, you know, the romantic element of this movie is very fascinating to me. Yeah. Um, the dynamic between, uh, Daniel Kulia and, um, Alison Williams. Like, yeah. I think there's such a fascinating dynamic in this movie. And like, she's almost the scariest villain in the film. <laughs> because of her position within the scheme of this family. Um, same with uh, uh, Catherine Keener. I think she's even more terrifying than the brother or the father because uh, it's the their manipulation and their um, their subtle victimization of these of these black people is horrifying to think about more so than some like guy with like I don't know a uh, the cross stick or whatever he <laughs> um, but I, I think like Daniel Kalia gives a horror performance for the ages I mean right like I'm not being hyperbolic uh, no, yeah. I think it's such You're an right. incredible performance like you know like psycho level like Janet Lee in psycho level um, an awesome horror performance like Jodie Foster level like um, uh, yeah I mean I, I could go on and on about horror performances that I love but um, I, it's just like it's. I mean, Jordan Peele, like he, I, you know, I knew who he was because I'd watched Keen Peele, like, you know, offhandedly. I never like watched every episode, but like, you know, I knew who he was and from Mad TV. So like, when I saw that he was directing a movie, I'm like, okay, whatever, like, you know, whatever. Like the trailers, I thought were interesting, but they didn't really like. I felt this movie like thought that it was going to be kind of an annoying horror movie. Um, but then it gets released with like rave reviews and all this hype and I'm like well I gotta see it and it blew me away you know like and one of the best theater experiences of my life um, I yeah. saw this movie in Times Square like on a Sunday night or Saturday night I think and um, 
like uh, it was just like everyone was just like losing their minds. <laughs> like um, I will never forget being in the audience for the ending. Um, you know, you see the the blue and red lights, and everyone just like pin drop silence. And then, you know, the door opens and it says airport or TSA and everyone just erupts in laughter and applause. I mean, it's like unreal. Like it was like Star Wars level of being in the theater. Like I have not been in a movie theater experience like that, except for like an Avengers movie or a Star Wars movie. Yeah. And I was like, I knew this movie was not only going to be a huge hit, but it was going to be an iconic movie just because like, you know, a movie like that, you just don't get like... A reaction like that you just don't get for every movie, even ones that are like crowd pleasing. Like I was, just, I just knew, and like I remember this was the weekend that um, uh, Moonlight won Best Picture. Like it comes out that same weekend, and I just remember being like on high. <laughs> I was just like, what is happening? Like this is like an incredible three days in my life. <laughs> um, and you know, Get Out, like it, like instantly changed culture. Like the like the sunken place became an instantly recognizable phrase. Like, you know, um, I was listening to a lot of like, you know, black uh, hosted podcast like hosted podcasts, and you know, this the impact of this movie just could not be understated or overstated. Like, um, and you know, like this movie's Oscar trajectory is fascinating as well because it was always a thing of like, you know, it. Could this happen? Will this happen? And then, as it sort of, as the Oscar season went on, and it just kept picking up nominations and winning things, and I was like, "Man, this is going to be an amazing Best Picture nomination!" Like it feels like one, and not only to get Best Picture or Best Screenplay, but like Best Director, like Jordan Peele's direction, like so. I mean, just brilliant. And like, I love Us too, and I think in Us, I love because it's like he really, I think, tops himself in his ambition and his scope. But I think Get Out is extremely precise. Like, not a frame of that movie is wasted. And you could, like, write articles about every frame of that movie. Yeah. (laughs) Of Get Out. And I think same with us, too. Like, I just think, like, you know, first, much like Greta Gerwig um, and Sofia Coppola, like, you know, and Barry Jenkins, like, these people just, like, arrive on the scene with, like, this, like, per- and Mir and I are, too. They just arrive on the scene with this, like, vision, and they just know how to execute it. And, like, I think even when a, a director will falter like that, um, a director like that will falter, like, it'll still be extremely fascinating because, like, what, even if it's not as, like, coherent or precise or sound as, you know, it's still going to be interesting. So, like, whatever Jordan Peele does, it's always going to be interesting. It's always going to be fascinating, and good or bad. But, like, I really don't see myself hating a Jordan Peele movie. Like, I just don't see it happening. I think he's so... I think he's on a level that I think is um, something I'm really in tune to. Like, I love Us. I've seen Us, like, four or five times, too. Um, and, like... I'm just, like, on in it for the ride, and I think that, like, I'm also in it just to, like, really dig deep into, like, his themes and his ideas because um, I, he's incredibly smart. Yeah. I, I'm in- More smarter than I could ever imagine being myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's something you want in a filmmaker you admire. Just, let, just be smarter than me, at least, please. Um, yeah. And he definitely is, and... I have a similar experience watching this in theaters. Like I, I mean, I saw it like 
on uh, this was like maybe my second or third time seeing it but i took friends to see it at like uh one of those i I think regal still does like those like cheapo tuesday nights or something and i was like you know this is like three or four weeks into the run i'll see it again because i love it uh, on you know this cheap Tuesday showtime like eight, eight, I think eight or nine at night nobody's gonna be there. The theater was full, and they again like erupted. They reacted. They laughed. Like th- that ending was still powerful. I was shocked that this movie. I mean, not shocked. You know that like oh how could this movie? Do-? I was like shocked that it would still have that power so many weeks in. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, we don't get that often or at all anymore with like original like adults you know yeah. uh, uh, horror you movies know, I, I will say that like you know I've seen The Force Awakens multiple times in theaters and Endgame multiple times in theaters like it's not the same high as the first time even with a proud crowd like I think maybe because like if you're seeing Endgame like a month later it's going to be the diehard fans that aren't going to react as strongly you know because they'd seen it so many times or whatever but Get Out like both times I saw it had major um, audience reactions to it and just just like you were saying like it still had that power and I think just because it's you know um, so much more intellectually and um, unsettling so much more intellectually unsettling and really intentionally unsettling and I think a lot of those like blockbusters like they're surface pleasures are very surface level which is fine like I you know loved my the Force Awakens is my favorite experience in the theater, but like it loses that power. But like I don't think Get Out loses that power just because it's like baked into the film. It's not just like you know a bunch of nerds, you know, getting excited about seeing a lightsaber. <laughs> nerds getting excited for a lightsaber. Yeah, that's 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 them. <laughs> but uh, oh god, yeah. Um, but yeah, I love Get Out. Why don't we talk about one more, and then we'll. Uh, yeah, take a yeah. break. Let's talk about uh, American Psycho at 13. Uh, Mary Heron. Uh, talk about this one, Manish. Yeah, I mean, I think um, very similar to Get Out. I mean, I didn't even notice that these two were side by side and that they were thematically together. Uh, but um, similar to Get Out, it's just an in- intelligent horror movie. Um, I, I think it's a really a fascinating takedown of um, masculinity and uh, male vanity, male ego um, and uh, I think it's so funny and so weird it's kind of it's like weirdly sexy too and it has a lot of great characters um, and of course the like chorus of same looking men like Jared Leto and stuff um, but also has just, like incredibly f- intense female performances from uh, really great actresses like Reese Witherspoon and Chloe Sevigny and Samantha Morton, Samantha Rollinson. Oh God, oh, uh, Samantha Mathis. Samantha Mathis. Oh yeah, playing Cordy Rollinson. Um, and um, yeah, it's just like so. Um, yeah, I, th- I think that's a really smart. I mean, like Mary Heron's visual style in this movie is absolutely mind blowing. And, it's, you know, I tried to read this novel and I found it almost, like, too disgusting to finish. <laughs> like, I just, like, uh, Bright Easton Ellis, I just, he just grosses me out. And I and I, I think this movie was, the book was lacking the satirical punch that the movie has. And I think this movie being written and directed and produced by women, um, especially someone like Guinevere Turner, who's, like, this iconic 90s lesbian um, and Mary Heron, um, who is this, like, you know, she did I Shot Wendy Warhol and stuff, like, 
she like the two of them together find the satire in this movie and they make it more interesting and they also kind of suss out the like that like Patrick Bateman is actually kind of a dork like he wants to be this like cool guy with all these like amazing catchphrases and like the coolest watches like the hottest suits the like you know coolest apartment or whatever but he's like a big dork that no one likes and no one really thinks much about and I think that's like the smartest take on this character because you know like we like so many movies like this that a lot of male viewers misunderstood it and like it for the wrong reasons yeah um and i think patrick Bateman's really cool and i was one of those guys when i saw this movie for the first time you know years ago but having grown up with the movie and you know being more aware of um of the world around me like seeing the satire in this movie like opened it up to me so much and I mean, I've always loved this movie since I first saw it, like, 15 years ago, or even more than that. But um, I really love this movie now. I think it's, like, it's one of the best movies of the 2000s I've ever... I mean, obviously, it's on this list. Um, because I, I just think it's, like, so much smarter than I think people give it credit for. And so much more elegantly crafted. Um, you know, her shot compositions, her use of music, her editing... Uh, it really makes you kind of doubt your own self as you watch it, as this movie gets crazier and crazier. Um, and I think it has a, a... I love the ending. Like, the last 20 minutes of this movie, I love. Um, and, um, yeah, I think it's just... It's great. Christian Bale, like, I think his best performance, um, even as someone that I really admire as an actor, um, uh, I just love his performance in this movie. It's just so, like... He gets it. You know, he... I think Barry Heron directed him to get the character in the way that I don't think people got until, you know, years later. Yeah, it's interesting. I just had this conversation um, about Fight Club, about another movie that was, like, misunderstood. Still misunderstood. Yeah, Um, yeah. That was, like, 99. This is 2000. But, yeah, it's... This movie, it's, it's... it, it got under my skin the first time I saw it. I still don't understand all of it. <laughs> I think I need I do need yeah. I do need to watch it again, but it has this unsettling feel that I've never really shook actually. Like I, I still think about it, I go, yeah, that movie it's still so um it, it, it's hard to even replicate in any other movie. <laughs> like yeah, a, few, yeah. a few movies have have made me feel like that. Uh, that American Psycho, you know, has made me feel so. Uh, yeah, and hey, um, I heard I, I I've not read that book, but from what I from what I've heard, and yes, Brent Brent Easton Ellis is is uh he's he's not a good person, but no. yeah, like. I just hear like in that book, there's like a whole chapter dedicated to like, uh, um, like that character writing a review of like, um, uh, um, like a whole album or something. I don't know. It's yeah. Like there's a lot of interludes of him, like describing like, um, uh, Wendy Houston album. Like he calls like the greatest love of all one of the best songs ever written. And I think in the book it's trying to be funny, but yeah, um, and like it's hip to be square. He talks a lot about like Phil Collins, uh, but in the movie it just like it just becomes funnier in the movie. I don't know like how they made that happen, but the the comedy and the irony and sort of the the satire of it just makes more sense visually than it does in the book because like you can like hear Christian Bale's delivery of these lines and you're just like. 
that he's doing it while he's like killing people and stuff like it's just like funny you know um and uh yeah so i think it's really um yeah this is like one of those movies that i think is better than the book yeah there you go, yeah um, have you not finished the book granted but um <laughs> i think it's better than the book yeah and hey i i believe you because um yeah I, that, that's what i've heard too that's this and like you mentioned like having uh, uh mary heron uh direct it co-write it you know i mean brett Easton Ellis is like listed as one of the writers, but like there's two other you know female writers uh, off yeah. for, on that credit. So through that lens, you know, it's it's less of like a, I guess the book is like kind of like tearing on is this satire is this funny? But the, I think the film makes it very clear. Like yeah, let's 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 put a light yeah. a, a more satirical light on all this. So it works, it works. Yeah. That's a good place to pause. We will stop there and we'll talk about the rest of Manisha's list uh, at, uh, on the other side of this break, folks. So stay tuned. Will we beat David Giannini's episode length? You have to find out. <laughs> I think we will. <laughs> I think we will. <laughs> We're back. Whew. Uh, those uh, 20 seconds, uh, they're pretty long for those people listening. Uh, but uh, for us, it's just like, you know, nothing at all. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> where were we? So we are, I think we just talked about American Psycho. Uh, we talked about Get Out. Uh, we're up to number 12 on your list, Manish. Um, and again, these are ranked, right? Where we're heading up yeah. towards your number one. Um, number twelve on your list is *The Age of Innocence* from 1993 by a by a guy named Martin Scorsese, by by Marty himself. Um, hey, I got a confession. I've never seen this. <laughs> I'm shocked. Yeah, it's you know it's it's um uh it's a cliche to be like oh this is not like you know martin scorsese's other movies but i mean it's actually very thematically uh resonant with his usual work like you know goodfellas and casino and um departed and and all that uh not because this movie has anything to do with like you know gangsters or crime but it's about people who are living in a society and really trying to uh, kind of bend the rules a little. They think they're kind of, or they're stifled by the rules, and um, and so they're just trying to like live their lives, you know. And uh, it's a romance. It's a period movie. I think it's, um, you know, I, I think people who might be less versed in Scorsese might find it boring just because it's all talk. I mean, it's literally all talking in rooms. Um, Even the central romance doesn't really get consummated at all. And it's really about the tension of that. And uh, I don't know, but I think this movie's like emotional violence is like really brutal. (laughs) Like it's, it's a challenging movie. Um, I think this is actually one, like, um, I've read somewhere, it might have been Scorsese himself or some review saying that like this movie is actually more violent than Goodfellas because it's um, 
all in the emotions and all in the repression and it's you know it's um all in the uh sort of what's not being said you know the subtext and it's a beautiful film you know i think it's um you know, gorgeously rendered, you know, costuming, uh, the title credits by Saul Bass are stunning. Um, really great use of dissolves, if I remember correctly. Um, and, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, fabulous in the movie, Michelle Pfeiffer, one of her best performances, Winona Ryder, same, like, it's just, uh, like, this movie just has this like really beautiful power to it and I really want to give a major shout out to the cinematography which was done by Michael Ballhaus who worked with Scorsese like many many times Um, just it's so lush and not in a kind of stuffy or uh, like very ornate way like it's not like a it's really not like a Merchant Ivory movie as good as those movies are like Howard's End or Room with a View but there's just such an attention to detail and um, the yeah the romance part of it just feels it comes alive through this really evocative camera work because like I said it's all about what's not being said and that's what makes it such an such an interesting movie. I think it's Scorsese's best movie, uh, or at least it's in, definitely in my top three. And I, I chose it over the other ones, like The Aviator, After Hours, um, both of which I think are also my favorites. It's sort of triple A tr- trilogy. Um, just because I think it's a little bit more sophisticated um, and it's really him at sort of the, the peak of his powers and you know it's always interesting to me when a director like Scorsese kind of does a period romance because like you know Scorsese he's obviously a very uh, ex- he's a director that explores genre more so than I think he gets credit for even even though we talk about how he explores genre all the time, I, I still think that it's, you know, he plays with genre. He's, I mean, he's obviously a very intelligent filmmaker and so well-versed in Hollywood history. So when he takes on a period drama, like, he really does something really unique with it and brings, I think, a level of uh, violence to it and a level of... Um, tragedy to it that I think many other filmmakers might be uh, cautious to do. He really takes it to the extreme even in a movie that's really just about people talking and looking at each other. Yeah, I'm excited to finally watch this. I have the Criterion, obviously. Yeah, the Criterion looks beautiful. Um, In fact, the reason why this movie even climbed onto this list is because of that Criterion, because Ah. I hadn't seen this movie for ages until it came out and I bought it because I was like I actually just bought it because I like the cover because um, it's one of those covers I'm like I just want this on my shelf you yeah know? yeah. Um, and I found in love with it so wow. uh, here we are yeah I and uh, I've been reading a lot of um, a lot about Scorsese lately I've been reading mm-hmm. that um, uh, Roger Ebert book on Scorsese and I, I find to your point I find him fascinating because Scorsese, I mean, it's kind of like uh, 
a stupid thing for me to say. I find Martin Scorsese fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> but I just think, uh, yeah, like to your point, like he he's known for these crime dramas. He know he know he's known as like a genre filmmaker. But like genre, you know, he can do anything if he puts his mind to it like he can make a kid's movie like hugo or he can make like a you know a romance you know period piece like age of innocence like uh he's making a western now so he's he's i never want to count him out is what i want to say so if anybody even like hesitates about watching age of innocence i don't know why i haven't still watched it yet i i maybe it's because i'm always wanting to find you know an opportunity to see it on the big screen I, I, yeah i kind of always do that with some, some of these big ones i did that with barry linden i waited and waited and waited and finally they showed it in the theater and i was like okay fine i'll see it for the first time in a the theater so maybe mm-hmm. i'll finally see age of innocence but in a the theater who knows or i'll just sit my ass down and watch the criterion tomorrow so either way i i mean the thing is like um the criterion just looks like I'm, it's not the same experience, of course, but like, it's not like watching it on, you know, uh, some cable channel with commercials. Like, you'll, That's true. You'll have that yeah. whole experience, um, and I encourage you and any, anyone else to to do so as well. Yeah, please do, and I will. I promise. Make a lot of promises on these episodes. Um, <laughs> next one, uh, kind of thematically similar maybe you tell yeah. me Manish uh, Eyes Wide yeah. Shut at number 11 1999 uh, I mean you are really doing an excellent job of tying these movies together in I mean, ways that I don't think I even thought of it but um, you, so. you but you're doing the work for me <laughs> putting them side by side because like that's that's fairly obvious right there <laughs> but no but it is but I didn't even think about it so <laughs> but uh, um, Eyes yeah. Wide Shut I'll just quickly say it, it might not even be in like my top three Kubrick, but it's still one of my favorite Kubricks and one of my favorite movies ever. And I always want to mention this because I think it, I think it's true. I think it has the best final line of a movie yeah. ever, ever, ever. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. I. I had a. T- so I'm not this. Huge, I'm not really a big Kubrick fan. I haven't really seen a lot of his movies. I've seen. As much as, of course, The Shining, 2001, Lolita, and I think that's it. Um, and so I really can't claim to be this huge, you know, scholar of, of Kubrick. Um, but Eyes Wide Shut, like, so I have seen this on the big screen, actually. It played um, oh. in Brooklyn. Oh, I mean, I don't, I don't even know when it was, but because um, sometime in, uh, before 2020. I think it was like 2019 or 2018. So I, I went to go see it, um, and it's the kind of movie where every time I see it, I have a really different experience. And this time, I noticed how funny it was. You know, like whenever you see an old movie in the theater, you always kind of run the risk of a laughy audience that's just going to take any kind of you know like thing in the movie and kind of joke at it and. Oh yeah. Any kind of like like cinematic flourish or kind of um, more, you know, kind of act, like a different kind of acting choice or any kind of line could ever be a joke. And like, so many classic movies have been ruined for me just because I got an audience that just like laughed at everything. And I'm like, 
I understand that like this movie is like 20 years old or 60 years old but like it's not funny I hate that yeah <laughs> um, but I think with Eyes Wide Shut it actually kind of worked because I think this movie is really funny and I think it's the audience laughed at and didn't laugh at every single thing that happened but the points where they did laugh I was like you know I can kind of see the comedy here um, like a lot of Nicole Kidman's performance I think was very funny especially you know in her showcase you know marijuana scene um, I think she's doing a lot of really interesting things here and um, you know this movie is a movie about marriage it's a movie about sexual repression it's a movie about it's a movie about New York City um, even though it's shot in London and the New York that is shown in the film I think is almost cartoonishly like Manhattan it's just almost like a cartoon but it works with this sort of like heightened dreamscape that this movie kind of exists in and um it's a good Christmas movie, uh, yeah. um, and I, I think it's a good Christmas movie because it um, it's about commercialization and you know that final scene. That scene is that line is amazing, but I love how uh, it takes place at a toy store where yeah. this young girl is just being like lo- allowed to like roam free and just buy whatever. And um, this sort of like idea of like money just kind of like always like there's just always seems to be a lot of money, even and uh, or there isn't a lot of money, but someone wants to act like act like they have a lot of money. Like Tom Cruise, like it's I think this movie is fascinating because um, you know he thinks he is in this sort of like high society thing. And he wants to, he sees himself as being very, like, high class, like, powerful, wealthy. But this movie is basically, like, slapping him around, telling him that he's actually just, like, a worker bee to these people that he wants to, that he thinks he's an equal to. And, like, how much money he's actually giving all the time. And he's running out of money. And, but it's, like, it's because he's really out of his depth. And... You know, one thing I really like about Tom Cruise as an actor is movies like this, Magnolia, Edge of Tomorrow, that are really just kind of like um, forcing him to like reckon with his own uselessness. Yeah. <laughs> and um, because you know the Mission Impossible movies, I love them; they're great. And I think I think actually the later ones do this too, which is like, you know, he's not the like super cool Top Gun movie star in these movies. He's actually like always has his back to the wall in a corner and has to like really scramble his way out of these situations where he's completely out of his depth and um so i think that's what makes uh eyes watch so great because i think and i think that's why it's so important to get tom cruise and nicole kidman in this movie because kubrick really had to like break them down now i know that's very controversial because of his treatment of actors you know that's come a lot of scrutiny in that and i think that's very important but um, for this movie, I mean, I think Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman are much tougher actors than... Um, I, they're tough actors in the sense that I think they both like to kind of be beaten down. Uh, Nicole Kidman especially seems like an actor who's like very much willing to give herself over. Yeah. And Tom Cruise needs that. <laughs> um, and so I think it's... you know, I, I, I don't think I've ever heard Nicole Kidman say anything about you know, being abused on set like Shelley Duvall was in The Shining. But if she does, I'll, you know, change my opinion on this. But I think that she um, it just always seems like someone who is willing to go through the ringer for her craft. And 
not in an obnoxious way, but just in like, you know, she's there for the art of it. And yeah, I just like, I don't know. I just, I, I find this movie's sort of like um, evisceration of like this elitism and like Tom Cruise is just like flexing this movie being completely like unimportant and uninteresting to everyone else in the movie. Um, oh, one thing that I love about this movie that I feel like no one really talks about is like uh, the use of doppelgangers in this movie. Like, they're like Nicole. There are so many women who like kind of look like Nicole Kidman. Like for and some and there's one guy that kind of looks like Tom Cruise. And it's um, that in the beginning that uh, patient's daughter and who like confesses her love to Tom Cruise. And she looks just like Nicole Kidman. I believe it's Marie or Maria Richardson. And then um, he rejects her and then goes back to her because he's just trying to get laid. And he's like, oh, there's that woman who, like, wants me. So I'll go back and see if I can, like, score. And then her boyfriend shows up. And it's, like, some, like, nerdy Tom Cruise-looking guy in, like, an oversized suit and huge glasses and, like, long hair. And, like... Um, and even like the women, like the uh, woman at the at the orgy who like saves him, looks just like Nicole Kidman, tall, lanky, red hair. Uh, Vanessa Shaw, also Nicole Kidman, kind of doppelganger, like kind of red hair, pale. Um, and I just like, I just think like this is the kind of movie where you could really analyze like every line or every shot and write a whole essay on it, like. Um, I would love to do that for this movie, like to or like record a commentary or something, because I just have so much to say about it, and I think it's so interesting. Uh, uh, I okay, I, I I hate to bring Roger Ebert up again, but like, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 he used to do this thing where he would go. Um, I don't know if you've heard about this, Manish, where he used to go through a movie frame by frame with like. A, a class full of students, right? Or uh, mm-hmm. or did it at festivals, like with just an audience, right? He'd go mm-hmm. through it frame by frame, and whenever somebody had something to say about it, they'd go, you know, stop, and then they'd say something about it. Anybody can jump yeah. in and like talk about the movie that's playing, and Ebert would just uh, pause it and they'd talk about it, right? This would be a perfect uh-huh. candidate for that because I feel like, yeah. like, like you're saying, every frame, every line. To me, every time I watch it, for me, every time I watch it, it feels like I'm, it, it's like a, a telltale sign of a true classic for me. It's like if I watch it again and again, I keep getting something new out of it. Like what you just said about the doppelganger thing, I never caught on to. And I n- next time I watch it, I'm going to keep an eye on that because that is another layer in this movie that I immediately am like, oh, wow, that's amazing. But yeah, it feels like one of those where you can you can look at it, you can analyze it forever and still find something new you know to to talk about uh it so yeah i i'm with you it's it, 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 and to think like it's his final movie and it was controversial not it was a controversial it was um i forget who but like somebody said like kubrick hated it before he died or something and yeah, i know that's always been kind of a rumor yeah i i, I, I never bought true. that i never bought that so because it, it feels like the perfect movie for him to end on, I, well, it wasn't intentional, you know. Uh, you know, he 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 didn't pull up David Bowie, but like, it feels like another masterwork. And right, it wasn't like it. It wasn't seen as that when it first came out. I think it kind of like did 
okay at the box office. I, I, I forget if it was ever nominated for an Oscar, but now I see it's like, oh, people have elevated it to like, yes, it's yeah, it's right up there with like the other greats. From well, Kubrick. I think also this movie was marketed or at least had sort of this like hush hush reputation of being a very sexy movie. Oh, that's right. With a lot of like, I think people are looking for a lot of um, you know nudity or whatever, and this movie has it, but it's also like. I mean, it's it's a very horny movie in the sense that like Tom Cruise is a walking erection in this movie. <laughs> like the poor guy, like does not have any sex, and so I think people were just very like somewhat disappointed that like it was this sort of like weird arty thing of like marriage and masculinity and stuff, and not like you know Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman having sex every five scenes <laughs> and something. Wait, I, but I, I definitely remember. Me the, too. I definitely have heard that that rumor about Stanley Kubrick, and I think it's just a, a thing of like that, where it's just like he rushed it to to finish it, and it's not even the cut he wants. I mean, who know, who even knows where he will get this stuff? Yeah, I don't know. But I, I was gonna say I remember what because this is what I used to do as a kid, and this is why I'm like this as an adult. I used to watch Entertainment Tonight every night, and I remember distinctly them premiering the trailer for Eyes Wide Shut, and they had to like. A block out sensor, Nicole Kidman's boobs, and yeah. it was that tra- it was a teaser trailer of just them in the mirror, uh, Kidman and Cruz, and um, Chris Isaacs. It's a bad. What, what, what song is that? Uh, Baby did a bad bad thing or something. It was playing over the no. It's the bad trailer. to the bone. Bad, was it bad to the bone? One of those songs. I, was I don't like, know about the trailer, but yeah, it was like super sexy. It's hey, it, with like big yeah. red letters, Cruz, Kidman, Kubrick, eyes wide shut. But yeah, I remember yeah. that advertised that that you know that ad campaign of it being like a big sexy movie, and yeah, <laughs> this is not <laughs> a big sexy movie. It talks about sex, but yeah, it's definitely it. Uh, I, I, yeah, uh, people were bamboozled, but hey, people respect it now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but hey. Speaking of great movies, like we are on this episode, <laughs> that's my transition. Um, number ten, <laughs> Moonlight, from twenty sixteen, directed by Barry Jenkins. Moonlight, Manish, uh, Oscar winner for Best Picture, um, and it looks like yes, we're in your top ten. It's the most recent film on your top ten from twenty sixteen. Um, yeah, talk about Moonlight. Yeah, I mean, I don't. It, it's hard to talk about this movie just because I, it's so uh, recent, and it's also like a movie that a lot of people love for all the right reasons. So there's no like, you know, it's hard for me to like say, oh, it's underrated in this regard, or people don't understand it because I think it's. I, it feels like a universally loved movie, right? Like I don't think yeah. there's a contingent of like, you know, oh, it's over. Maybe there are people saying it's overrated. I'm sure, but. Um, you know, I this was the first year that I really paid attention to the Oscars, like from like June through whatever the ceremony was, March, I guess, and or February, and like so I just have a really special um, like connection to that class of Oscar movies, like Moonlight, La La Land, Manchester by the Sea. Um, uh, and uh, you know fences, hidden figures, all those, and um, 
I just like Moonlight, you know, was one of those movies I remember hearing about, you know, in like kind of like mid to late summer, early fall, you know, the trailer coming out. I remember being like, I think this movie might win Best Picture. And I had I had the proof because I tweeted, I posted it on Facebook in September. <laughs> and <laughs> September 2016, I posted it. And uh, I remember like waiting to see the movie in October and like I saw it in a packed house uh, opening night. Uh, possibly, and I was on a date, which is very funny uh, because it's not a date movie at all, and it was not a romantic experience uh, because we left and we were just like shell shocked. And um, yeah, I think it's like as close to a perfect movie as any movie can get. I mean, I think all the movies on my list are pretty much perfect, it's even in their own whatever, like flaws, whatever. I think they're just perfectly, you know, whatever. Um, but I think Moonlight, like, I think. F- formally thematically performance wise musically you know cinematography wise like i think it's just perfectly done i think barry jenkins you know even from his first film and and moonlight and beale street and underground railroad like he just has this like vision of the and the way that he brings together music and lighting and performance and camera work and editing it's just everything's just so expressive and um so like romantic not just like romantic as in like love but just like he's he's loves film and he's putting all these elements together to make a story that could only be told in this in this medium and um i think it's so uh you know the the, I, I mentioned the Oscar part of it just because, like, up, up until literally when it was announced as Best Picture, it was always like, could this win? Is it too small? Is it too, you know, is it too black? Is it too queer? You know? Um, and I just had this, I mean, even I was kind of like, I'm, you know, I, I remember predicting La La Land, you know, at the end of it because I just got convinced. Um, and, you know, it's a... You know, we don't need to go into that whole that whole night again because I feel like that's been sort of talked about to death. But you know, there is something really special about Moonlight, and it just felt like this could be you know a change. You know, especially in early 2017 when like we were all depressed because of the election, <laughs> um, and this movie just felt like a beacon of something of some kind of change. And um, you know, I I feel like. This movie is just so, um, it's so empathetic. It just has this, you know, uh, really casual way of being empathetic, too. It's not condescending. It's not preachy. It's not, um, it's not too heavy-handed. It just feels, like, so natural that, and I, that it's so grounded that when it takes on these more, uh, expressive sort of flights of fancy, you know, like sort of the classical music or the lighting kind of really shifts into something that's not quote unquote realistic, but very uh, artistic, then it feels earned because the rest of it is just so human and so personal and so intimate. Um, I, there's one criticism I have of it. I think that the last third, which is my favorite part of the film, you know, with um, Andre Holland and Trevante Rhodes, it's like, I feel like they kind of do um, cheat us of some kind of like sexual intimacy there. I think there's a lot of sexual tension, but um, it feels like a very, if the lack of any kiss between them or, 
you know, anything that's, you know, explicitly sexual feels a little like a decision outside of Barry Jenkins's hands where, you know, someone was like, I don't want to see these two guys kiss or the actors didn't want to do it or producers were like, no, we can't do that. It just feels a little, it just doesn't feel as authentic. It doesn't close the loop from the, you know, the beach encounter in the second, in the second third of the film. But I don't hold that against this movie too much because it's like so perfect in every other (laughs) scene and every other way. Um, I think the child actors are incredible. Obviously the teen actors are really great. I mean, they both have gone on to do amazing things, Um, especially Jarell Jerome. And uh, yeah, I mean, Mahershala Ali, I know I've seen him in a million things, but this was the first time where I was like, whoa, okay. Um, Naomi Harris, of course, uh, Janelle Monet, brilliant performance there. Audrey Holland, like, I, you know, I'm so swoony. The music in that sequence is so great. The cooking, it's just like, I, I just watched this movie again recently. Um, and yeah, it holds up. I mean, I've seen this movie, I think, three or four times, and there's just nothing like it. I think it's like a defining movie of, of the 2010s and of this, you know, I hate to say it, but post Trump era. Yeah, I, I do love this movie. I love Barry Jenkins as like a person, as a director. Like, I still need to see Underground Railroad. I heard that's amazing. Um, and even like Beale Street like blew me away because didn't that come out the same year as like First Man and like uh, he, like d- like they both had like their own like it, uh, it wasn't it, it wasn't like a rematch yeah. but you know it was like them facing off again you know with with like competing it was movies it's hard not to think of it that they have competing movies and not only that but like both kind of just like were not whips because I love First Man I love Beale Street both incredible movies but they both kind of just had this like shrug reaction which, especially financially uh, which is kind of frustrating because like I love Moon Knight but I also love like Beale Street and I love First Man yeah. I love La La Land I love all these movies yeah. but you yeah, know yeah. but uh, but I, I guess my point about that is like yeah Beale Street and First Man kind of like made a blip but I feel like we should cherish every Barry Jenkins thing you know because because yeah, like yeah. he like with with like this with Moonlight and with like Bill Street, and I think this conversation was coming up too because of um, because I think Get Out came out like a year later. It's like ne- like we're like as not we filmmakers like today are much smarter about shooting you know black people on film uh, because mm-hmm. like they're more uh, um, aware of like color and like uh, the, the cinematographers are more aware of like what looks better on film because like when you have like white cinematographers or like people who've just been shooting white people for the last hundred years shooting yeah. movies with black people in them it does it's it's yeah it doesn't work when you don't consider you know what they look like on screen you know because of skin tone but with like films like this and get out and like this new era of like um, of these filmmakers you, yeah it's they, they create these beautiful images that just feel like yes like this is like the era of filmmaking i love <laughs> like this the, these visuals like these close-ups of of uh, jenkins i still can't, can't can't get them out of my head like they and yeah they're they're amazing yeah, I mean, the funny thing is that uh, James Laxton, who shot both of these films, Bill Street and Moonlight, is white. Yeah. <laughs> but I yeah. think, you know, um, I think he just is, uh, I don't know, maybe cares more or is, um, 
is more considerate. He's you know, he, more considerate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because um, yes, I, I, yeah. I've 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 either seen videos or just heard people talking about like yes, like there's a difference, and some people just don't know the difference of like. What, I mean, I yeah. I mean, granted, like when it comes to stuff like that, like my naked eye, like anything having to do with like visual effects or cinematography like lenses whatever i really don't know like my thing of good cinematography is like doesn't look pretty um which i know is very basic but um i when i learned about that and learned the difference between moonlight and you know other other black films that are shot by white film uh, cinematographers it's night and day you can see like it's so clear the difference um and Especially, I think, a movie like Beale Street Could Talk, which I think is, like, one of the most romantically shot films I've ever seen. (laughs) Like, it's really up there with, you know, the great romances of, you know, the the classic era in terms of just, like, pure pure romantic filmmaking. Um, And... Uh, yeah, I think I mean, Medicine for Melancholy, I've only seen it once um, and that has a very kind of like gimmicky look I think it's like black and white and like pink uh, very cool looking but um, definitely you know, you can see the uh, you can see the growth of Jenkins as a visual filmmaker Yeah, yeah. Um, I think even between Moonlight and Bill Street Talk. yeah, it's, it's incredible um, yeah, those two, those two movies, and him making them back to back, you know. Um, but again, I need to see Underground Railroad. I keep hearing great things. I'm frustrated that yeah, it just feels like it was just dumped earlier this year. Yeah, you know, I saw a lot of hype for it before it came out, um, and it was like rapturous. And then, you know, I hate. To, I think it's really the week to week thing. You know, like I feel like I've. WandaVision and uh, like Mary Beast Town, I feel like those shows just lived forever for a couple of weeks because yeah. it was like week to week. And I think Underground Railroad, I, I think they should they should have done that. I think it was a mistake that they didn't. Yeah, um, and I still have not seen because um, it because Underground Railroad was an Amazon show. Uh, I yeah uh, last year they released Small Axe and I haven't seen that yet. So. Um, I just uh, it's kind of frustrating because like uh, I don't know maybe a theatrical rollout would have been interesting in either case but they're TV shows I don't know it's yeah. uh, that's a whole other soapbox I can get on but not not now <laughs> not now why don't we go to your number yeah. nine hey Mulholland Drive from 2001 directed by David Lynch yeah oh boy Mulholland Drive this is another one of those where it's like on my list i'm like what lynch movie am i gonna put on it's it's difficult because mulholland drive i feel like if i watched mulholland drive like right now i'd be like yes that one for sure makes my top 25 but if i watch like lost highway tomorrow i'll go wait a second that makes my top 25 (laughs) for this one how hard was it for you to put uh, this lynch over uh, any other lynch not hard because I've only seen four Lynch movies plus season one of Twin Peaks. Oh. Um, and I really wanted to see, uh, especially Lost Highway and Wild at Heart. I think those. Oh, and Dune. I've seen Dune. Um, I think, yeah, Lost Highway and Wild at Heart seem the most like me, like movies that I might like. 
But, um, you know, Blue Velvet I've seen, Eraserhead I've seen, Alpha Man I've seen, like, obviously, you know, much like Sandy Kubrick, like, you know, I can't say I'm, like, a huge major fan, nor can I say I don't like their work. Uh, I, I appreciate them, I enjoy them, I obviously very influential, exciting filmmaker. He does a lot of, I mean, obviously. Uh, but I think for Mah- for me, Mahalan Drive is just like, um, the thing that really speaks to me about it is like, it's sort of nods to old Hollywood. Um, very like that sort of like persona thing of like, you know, um, women and like changing personas and, um, you know, the sort of like the sexual tension of it all, the, um, you know, the sort of, uh, like, dream logic part of it. And Mulholland Drive is the kind of movie for me that once I watch it, I really can't get it out of my head for at least a couple of days, if not, like, a week. Like, the first time I saw it, it gave me nightmares because I thought it was so scary. Um, I think there were scenes that were really scary, like the the diner part with those two guys. Oh, yeah. And the bum in the back. That freaked me out. Um, and I still, whenever I rewatch the film... I, I still get very nervous when that part comes because <laughs> I get so scared. Um, but just like the even even in like the sort of the last third or the last fourth of the movie when it's not fantastical and it's all very much like just like super real, I just can't, I find it so depressing that it just like really gets in, under my skin and I can't shake off that feeling like. I cannot imagine what it was like to make this movie because I can imagine that, like, poor Naomi Watts, like, you know, I just can't imagine what it was like to embody this character and then just, like, go on to, like, do, I don't know, like, King Kong or whatever she did, or, like, the <laughs> divorce. Um, and I, I, but I think it's fabulous. Um, I, you know, it's very much like Eyes Wide Shut. It's the kind of movie where I'm like, I feel like I could write a lot about every single part of this movie or do one of those like, you know, stop frame by frame pauses like Ebert did. Uh, but, um, yeah, I think, you know, and I, I think that actually this movie has a reputation for being very mysterious and no one really knows what's going on and there's whatever, but I actually don't think it's that, like, confusing. Um, but then again, I feel like my interpretation of it is probably the most basic one and the one that's, like, probably the most popular out there. Um, but I think it's, like, really not a movie that is meant to confuse you, even though it kind of looks like one. Um, you know, and Lynch, you know, he has this whole thing about, like, I don't talk to anyone about what my movies mean. I don't even know what they mean, whatever. But um, I think, like, actually this movie is a little bit more straightforward than uh, people think it might be. Um, this is also a good doppelganger movie, actually. And also a good movie where, like, um, you know, I love movies where, like, uh, like especially where a movie is kind of like a dream and they're, like, stand-ins for people in the real world and they show up in different places. Like, here, so many characters kind of pop in into, um, you know, Naomi Watts' characters, like, kind of little fantasy in the first two-thirds of the movie and then they have, they play a role in their real life and it's sort of, you can see where you know, her subconscious kind of filtered them into it. Um, very, like, Wizard of Oz-like, you know. Um, and I don't... Uh, I don't doubt that Lynch is a fan of Wizard of Oz. 
Um, oh yeah, because I think it's all over this movie. It's all over many Blue Velvet. I think also has some like weird Wizard of Oz kind of thing to it. Um, you should see for sure Wad at Heart because there's a lot of Wizard of Oz in there. Yeah, yeah, see, like I, I think like the. Um, yeah, I think that movie feels like one that I would love. And I actually almost wanted to go see it at an Alamo Draft House screening, but then I think I'd like work late and I would have missed it by the time I got off work. So I had to cancel that ticket and I'm really upset about it. I'm kind of hoping that like Criterion Channel kind of puts up more because that's how I saw uh, Elephant Man. Um, but yeah, I know I really like, you know, I really like Mahon Drive. It's, again, it's a movie that Criterion kind of like saved for me because I ended up buying it being like, this feels like a movie that I should have. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I was just like, I watched it. Um, I've, I've watched it twice on Criterion Blu-ray and both times I'm just like, this is incredible. Um, and, you know, there's so many, there's so many like little clues of this movie that really just kind of gives you um, more of like a firm standing of like what's happening behind like behind the like physical scenes. Um, and yeah, I think Laura Herring is incredible. Like she plays this femme fatale in like both kind of timelines of the movie. Um, and she's so alluring, you know, with that like gorgeous black hair and those really just like wide eyes, um, or like really just kind of like sharp eyes, I guess. Like she always has this like piercing look to her. Um, Ann Miller, fabulous. Justin Theroux, hilarious. Um, yeah, I just like, I find it to be fascinating to think about. And, um, yeah, I think it's just great. Like, uh, wasn't this movie named the best movie of the 21st century? I, be- like, I believe so. Sight and, not Sight and Sound by uh, uh, I think some British. Maybe it was Sight and Sound. Like they did that whole poll of like uh, like hundreds of critics all over the world, and Mulholland Drive came out as number one. And um, it feels like both an obvious chip, an obvious pick, or but also a out of left field choice. You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, I, you know what? When that came out, when that poll came out, that result came out, I'm like, yeah, fine, I'm good with that. <laughs> but but yeah, Mulholland Drive, yeah. because it it seems like that. This is just me pulling it, pulling something out of my ass right now. But it seems to me that kind of um, cemented a kind of indie filmmaking or like an indie vibe. Like n- no, no indie movie is like this, by the way. That that's not what yeah. I'm trying to say. But kind of like just kind of like this. Um, this like 2000s era of like let's try something new and inventive in like a smaller scale because these actors who are in Mulholland Drive like Nomi Watts I love like like <laughs> almost every one of these actors came out of it and had their own kind of like indie careers just in Thoreau's careers like wild um, yeah but yeah it's it it is to me like a landmark movie in that sense of like it kind of influenced like so many others in ways that we may not even know you know but yeah to me it's just like a staple for me of like oh i watched this when i was like in high school around the time when i was really getting into movies and immediately i'm like oh naomi watts is in this i love naomi watts i I liked her in the ring so i'll just see her in this yeah (laughs) that that like um that kind of turn of like oh the third uh, the last third of the movie is that and it's naomi watts just 
going for it. Like that perkiness that she plays so well and that the, the first two thirds goes away and it's just like really, yeah. really something dark and like scary. She's super underrated as an actress, I feel. And, you know, she should get her due eventually. But in movies like this and even like season three of Twin Peaks, like there's stuff that she's been doing forever that people you yeah. know kind of just yeah. don't really pay attention to but yeah i i love this movie i love of course like it's maholland drive you know? yeah it's yeah maholland drive it's maholland drive folks um <laughs> let's go to number eight this one i have not seen the big city from 1963 talk to me about the big yeah. city Nish. um so this is uh, directed by Sethajit Ray, a uh, very famous in the West Indian filmmaker from uh, the state of Bengal. Uh, it's a Bengali movie about a, uh, a woman who is uh, in, uh, she's sort of the daughter-in-law of this family, of a more conservative family, um, and she is a housewife but um, has to uh, get a job as a salesperson because of financial issues in the house Um, and it's about her transition from sort of a meek housewife into a more um, self-assured woman Um, and also her family's kind of like reaction to both her independence and to this kind of new um, new life that they have where the daughter-in-law is working, which is not common in India, especially, you know, uh, 50 years ago, um, almost 60 years ago. So uh, actually, yeah, 60 years ago. Um, and, uh, you know, Rai is, um, you know, very famous for the Apu trilogy, for Jadulata, which is also an incredible. I mean, all these movies are incredible. The Music Room, um, The Hero, The Coward, like uh, Enemy of the People, like he's just very well known. Um, uh, and I kind of have a complicated relationship with him because I, I think he's a master filmmaker, but I think it's kind of hacky when. Uh, Western critics only really name his movies as like in their like kind of world cinema lists as like he's like the Indian token (laughs) Um, and uh, but I really don't hold that against him I mean he's just making the movies he wants to make and you know I think because but they're bunchily from the Apu trilogy really crossed over to the West it just made him a, a star sort of the Western art house scene in the 1950s and that reputation has carried. Um, and of course, he's very heavily featured in the Criterion Collection. Um, I think they have like 10 or 12 of his movies in their collection. Um, but the reason why I really like The Big City is uh, because I think it's, um, it's, I think it's a really feminist story. It's, it's a really, it's a story just, it's, it's another marriage movie, actually. I, I, a lot of movies I have on my list are marriage movies, um, which I'm realizing. <laughs> and, um, but I, I think it's just like, it's so evocatively filmed. You know, Rai had such an eye for just like gorgeous visuals that have a lot of um, just power to them. And, his stories are very simple. I and mean, this is really just about a woman who's like going to work. You know, this could be like a network sitcom, you know, or Mr. Mom. Um, and, 
but it's uh, just so like compassionate. I think it has such a respect for all of its characters, even the characters that I think now we'd be like, um, oh, we hate this, we hate her husband because he's really upset that she's working, or her father-in-law, or whatever, or her mother-in-law has this reaction. But um, and this movie has such an integrity to uh, to all of the characters. Um, the main character, her name is Arti in the film, she um, uh, befriends one of her colleagues who is an Anglo-Indian woman and who faces a lot of prejudice because of that. And, you know, in the beginning, Arti is very much a meek kind of woman. And in the end, she's really standing up for her friend and for her own position in, at this company where she's a saleswoman. And it's something that her arc is so subtle, you don't really even notice it until, you know, it happens at the end. I don't think Arthi even realizes what's happening. Um, and, oh, the other thing that we love about Rai is that his films are so much about India, so much about the, um, the transition from... Uh, you know, the uh, colonial times when the British were uh, occupying India to the post-colonial times um, and dealing with a lot of the tensions of the sort of Indian middle class that are just kind of like coming up at this time and um, realizing sort of their, their, their power, their economic power and this movie is just, I mean, it's called The Big City, and it's about sort of realize, like just making your way in the big city and, you know, struggling to survive, having the dignity, you know, not... Um, this movie isn't like misery porn. It's not even like that. It's just a very human story about triumphs and setbacks. And, you know, the, the, final, the final sequence of the film, which I don't want to spoil, but it's so incredibly powerful. Um, and just offers an ending that feels both conclusive but without like a neat tidy bow to it and that's an every love about Rai is how much he ends his films with um, you know hope and conclusion and you feel fulfilled and you feel uplifted but not with not because he's giving a very like you know um, tidy happy ending you know he doesn't do that he just has such love for his characters that you know, even when they're sort of facing uncertainty, they are still powerful. They're still dignified. They still have conviction. They still have agency. And um, yeah, the other thing I wanted to mention about this film, aside from the um, the filmmaking, but the uh, cinematography as well, really gorgeous. There are some like really amazing shots, especially of uh, mirrors. That's a good mirror movie. Um, and yeah, like I said, this movie's on Criterion Collection. It's on Criterion Channel. Recommend you watch it, Marcelo. It's yes, homework. <laughs> will, I'm writing it down. I will. Yeah. Is it? Uh, do you know if it's on Blu-ray for Criterion? Yeah, it's on Blu-ray. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah. Um, that, that sale's coming up yeah. in a few weeks. The Criterion yeah, sale. Yeah, it's got to grab it. Um, yeah. Like, I mean, I, I think you know, like Apu Trilogy is fabulous as well. Um, Charulata is also a masterpiece. I mean, like these five movies are like the best of the best. I mean, he's an incredible filmmaker. I'm still going through his work. There's a lot I haven't seen, but these five I think are the ones. And the hero I would put in there, which is kind of like a celebrity satire. Um, I would those six I would say are like you know, cream like top of the top. 
Gotcha. All right. Uh, I mean, and I have the Criterion channel. I need to use it more often. So. I think they, well, they, he had his, well, what would have been his 100th birthday back in May. So I think they put all their movies that they have on the channel. So they're all there. Good. I will, I will watch them, I <laughs> okay. promise, and I'll get back to you. Um, <laughs> but one I have yeah. seen, number seven, When Harry Met Sally from 1989. Now, this one, I believe, is your highest-ranked romantic comedy. I think I alluded to that in the first yeah. part. But, yeah, so this one... So this is your favorite romantic comedy ever, right? Yeah, this is like... I mean... It feels so cliche to say it because, like, it regularly ranks as, you know, the best romantic comedy on so many of these lists, or at least it's, like, up there. But uh, even with that, I still feel like this movie does not get the credit. Not because people don't love it. I think it's because I don't think people appreciate, like, what an incredibly made film it is. I think they love the, the comedy of it. They love, you know, it's iconic. It has all these, like, really classic lines. Um, of course, the like fake orgasm scene is like replayed in so many montages and stuff. Like this movie is a classic and it's iconic, but I feel like it doesn't get really the credit that it deserves for its filmmaking, the visuals of it, and the depth of its characters, and the very nimble, very, um, very uh, fresh, raw performances from especially Meg Ryan, who I think delivers, I think, one of the best performances of the 80s period in any genre of, of any actor. But also Billy Crystal is incredible in this movie. Um, and yeah, I think this like the the sort of like autumnal, wintry look of the film. I mean, this this movie takes place over many years, over many seasons. But I associate it with autumn, partially because of the poster, but also because like it just feels like a very. It's a movie about like real adults in their thirties, you know, uh, mid thirties, who like have careers and you know have had many relationships and. Um, so I just associate it with like the maturity of fall, and uh, I think also like my big. So <laughs> when I covered this movie on my podcast, the Pod to Be You, I asked our friend Dave to um, like inter- like talk to me about the movie as if I was the guest and he was uh, yeah. the host. Yeah, and my. The reason why I wanted to do that is because, like, I wanted to keep this movie for myself and not have to talk to someone else about, <laughs> about my favorite movie. Uh, but also because, like, this movie is so special to me. I I don't think I grew up with it. I w- didn't see it until I was about maybe, like, 15 or 16. So I wasn't young, but I wasn't old either. Um, and it's, like... But every time I watch it, I feel like I have a new appreciation for it because every time I watch it, I'm closer to Harry and Sally's ages. So I've had these experiences. Um, Or at least, you know, not the same ones, but similar. Like, I've been through many, many dates and many, many, you know, relationships and many, many, like, non-relationships. But, you know, I actually think that... This, the reason why I feel like this movie is so underrated is that because it gets um, uh, people talk about it as if it's like this thing where like men and women can't be friends because they will fall in love with each other or sleep with each other and I actually think this movie is about how men and women can be friends 
Um, I think, you know, the famous line of, like, the sex part gets in the way, that's, that's like, in the opening, like, five minutes of the movie. Like, that's before Harry even has his whole arc. And as they become friends, they're actually genuine friends. Like, they... They spend years as friends, and they spend so much time, like, not romantically interested in each other. And when it happens, it's two friends falling in love with each other, not, you know, people who are friends but then, like, sleep together. And, you know what I mean? It's just, like, it's diff- It's a nuanced thing, and I, I don't think people really appreciate that. I think they just kind of write this off as, like, this is, what, this is so... This is why men and women can be friends, but... I think they're genuine. This movie is about a genuine friendship, and it's about people who support each other, listen to each other, challenge each other, you know, rely on each other, betray each other, and then they fall in love. <laughs> and it's so their 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 romance is gradual, and it feels like a real relationship because they had this, you know, like very long time where they actually got to know each other as people without being attracted to one another, without. Um, pining over each other without manipulating each other, like sabotaging relationships. Like, they're both there for all these other relationships. Like, there's really no... The sex part actually doesn't really get in the way that much until, like, until it happens because there's not even any indication that they're sexually or romantically interested in each other until they do it. And even then, it's really circumstance. It's not really... That's something that's, like, that that builds up. So, that's my hot take on the movie. Um, I don't know if anyone really actually agrees with me. <laughs> um, my and yeah, I was gonna say my theory is it might have something to do with like it being categorized as a comedy because I don't think comedies get the respect they deserve. Yeah, that's um, true. So that, and like I, th- it's an ongoing sort of thing on my on these episodes anyway, where I'm always happy somebody if I'm always somebody. I will, let me start again. I'm always happy if somebody has a comedy on their list because. Yeah. You know, it, it, they, you know, I, you know, when Harry Met Sally does deserve to be up there with like the best of the best, you know, I mean, look at the pedigree, yeah. look at the pedigree, like Rob Reiner, Nora Ephron, Barry, Barry, Sonnenfeld. Barry Sonnenfeld, that cast. And also, yeah. I mean, speaking of which, I don't think Rob Reiner gets the respect he deserves as a director. You know, he's done so much, but I don't know. People just categorize him as like, he's, he's, he's a comedy guy, but my god his, yeah. his his filmography is is amazing i think he did this well right r- after this he did misery right? yeah exactly right before this yeah. yeah like that's crazy like that one two punch is in, like insane and then a few good men right after that I think. It, yeah he he had a run of like you know th- three or four amazing movies in different genres and it's a uh, other than like i don't know scorsese i don't know if anybody accomplished that in that short of a time so no. yeah but uh yeah. but yeah i love when harry met sally it's 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 one i i haven't seen in a while but i i want to put on uh soon and watch it again like right now like for me my go-to romantic comedy that I think uh, and, uh, that will end up on my list is uh, Broadcast News. And that's one I've been really thinking about these last few weeks for many reasons I won't get into. Yeah. But like, I feel like my, my um, uh, um, situation with like my connection with people and with relationships and how I treat other people and how I you know, fall in love with people. A lot of that stems from like broadcast news <laughs> or like it, 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 it like shines a light on that stuff for me. So I, I mean, 
I, I, uh, as many romantic comedies as anybody wants to put on their lists, I'm totally up for that because they do deserve that respect. And, um, again, I think it's that comedy stamp that maybe, you know, people may turn their nose up on. So anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think there, I think that's definitely very true. And I think especially a movie like this, which some people can just watch as like, this is on Saturday afternoon while I'm cleaning the house. You know, it's like this movie comes on TV so much, especially, you know, around Valentine's day or whatever. And I think it's just, it's so easy to lump this movie in with a lesser movie like it because like, you know, people who love romantic comedies, I don't, I think some of them don't really watch them closely to really appreciate the like artistry of it. I mean, I think something like broadcast news, like escapes that, um, somehow, I think maybe because of the Oscar attention that it got, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's just like when Harry met Sally, I think, I mean, I definitely want to give a major shout out to Barry Sonnenfeld's work. I mean, I think people do not appreciate his cinematography in this movie at all. It's a very writer's movie. Dora Efron is obviously a genius. Um, I really owe so much of my rom-com love to her. So I don't want to downplay her incredible script, um, but I also think that the camera work in this movie is so beautiful and just captures New York City extremely well. Uh, I mean, this is all around. Everyone that worked on this movie does amazing work. Carrie Fisher, especially. Oh, yeah. Oh, my uh, gosh. And Ryan. Uh, when Harry Met Sally. Uh, hey, watch it if you haven't. I don't know if anybody hasn't seen it. but <laughs> Please do. Yeah. Um, number six, The Red Shoes from 1948. Ooh, the red shoes. I haven't seen this in like fifteen years. Uh, it's insane that I, I I need to rewatch this. I I am. I think it's the only Pressburger Powell film I've seen. Uh, yeah. Which, which is which is I know I need to see. Oh gosh, what's the other one that Black Narcissus? That one I have to see. There's another one I have to see. Uh, Colonel Blimp. I think you would. Yeah, I think yeah. you would really like that movie. Yeah, but let, um, let's talk Red it's Shoes. It's a very Marcella movie. Oh, thank you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, the Red Shoes and I have very funny history together because um, I remember seeing it talked about a lot when Black Swan came out, you know, another ballet movie. Actually, both The Red Shoes and Black Narcissus were like mentioned so much when Black Swan came out. And I remember seeing this movie at a Barnes & Noble um, and the Criterion cover, it has Maura Shearer like, in like major close-up. And I thought that was Judy Garland for some reason because I never heard of this movie until Black Swan came out. And this movie was, I think, what led to my appreciation for a Criterion Collection. Ah. Um, this movie and, I think, like, Wild Strawberries. Um, and, like, I mean, Bergman. Bergman is obviously very influential in my Criterion Collection time period of this time. But the Red Shoes, for sure. Because it's also, like, the first Blu-ray I ever bought when I bought a Blu-ray player for myself. Um, this is back in 2011. So I love the red shoes. I watched it so much, like in the first like couple years that I had seen it, um, and I think like you know, it's, it's Scorsese is on the Blu-ray special features talking about it. Like I know he uh, used a lot of the he used a lot of the techniques in this film for Raging Bull. 
um, doing the uh, like uh, the ballet sequence in this movie inspired the boxing scenes in, in Raging Bull. Yeah, um, and the you know the editing of it and the camera work of it, and um, I like this movie is also like just a Technicolor masterpiece. Um, the use of color, the sort of flights of sort of um, uh, magical realism in this movie. Uh, really fun uh, and kind of really exciting and uh, Maura Shearer I think she's fine but like she's great in this movie like a beautiful dancer of course and you know she's not really a professional actress I mean um, beyond, I think she did a couple movies with Powell Pressburger and here and there but um, I think she gives this really spirited really intense performance that only someone who is a trained ballet dancer could give in this kind of movie, you know, like it's um, because just the way she carries her body is so graceful. And even when she's doing this very like high melodrama kind of performance in like sort of the latter half of it, it just, she just is so in control of her body and her movement. Um, and she always looks so graceful, even when she's like bawling or something and yeah Pal and Pressburger I mean I think they're you know they have such a beautiful run in the 40s um, you know The Red Shoes Black Narcissus Matter of Life and Death Colonel Blimp of course um, you know um, I, I know where I'm going uh, you know these are just really great films The Canterbury Tale um, and yeah I think the the, the, the Red Shoes just it's it's uh, the theme that they uh, that they the theme that they explore in this film is sort of like you know passion for your art versus passion for you know your life your love your heart um, it's really plays out I mean it's a very simple story but it plays out with such ornate detail and such um, heightened emotions heightened theatricality. That it just feels irresistible. Um, the Red Shoes Ballet at the center of the film, it's like a 20 minute sequence, and you're not even sure what's real, what's fantasy, because it all just blends together so well. The use of practical effects in Smoothie feel, um, they now they feel very arch and avant garde because we're so used to like CGI for um, sort of magical realism or special effects, and here they just feel so simple and so effective. Um, and the Red Shoes Ballet is just uh, it's electrifying. You know, I've watched it on YouTube so many times just because there are parts of it that just feel so unreal. I don't even know how they filmed it. Uh, but um, yeah, I think it's re- really just like you know, I have a lot of I have a lot of nostalgia for this movie because of sort of its uh, its uh, influence in my Criterion collection and my appreciation for classic movies. I mean, I've, I've always liked classic movies, but you know, The Red Shoes is like really took me to a new kind of classic um, and more thought-provoking and yeah um, and I, I went through a phase where I was obsessed with red-haired actresses because of Maura <laughs> Shearer like you know Julian Moore and Nicole Kidman uh, just like I just appreciated the red hair look <laughs> I I don't understand that Manisha I don't understand that at all um, I, I'm looking over at my shelf and I see Red Shoes 
on the shelf. And yeah. I know I bought it like at a, at a Criterion sale years ago, but yeah, it's one I need to rewatch for sure. Because um, I, I know I... You mentioned Scorsese. I know this is very. This is like one of his favorite movies, and um, yeah, um, I need to rewatch also Raging Bull because I've read so much about that recently too. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. So yes. Um, hey, why don't we go to another Criterion uh, collection film? I, I've seen this one, number five. We're in the top five now. Uh, La Dolce Vida from 1960. Fellini. It's a Fellini film. Yeah, you know, um, it was it was interesting to think. Like, I knew I wanted to have Fellini on this list. I love Fellini, um, and I was choosing between, I think, any one of his like five top five for me, like La Dolce Vita, Eight and a Half, Knights of Cabiria, Amacord, El Bidon. Like, I you know, it's hard to choose, but I think La Dolce Vita feels to me like peak Fellini. Like, this is him just like really putting it all out there um and what i love about la dolce vita is that it can work in two different ways one it can just be this very superficial party movie where you just like kind of put on and enjoy the music the sort of glamour of it the production design the sort of like you know woozy atmosphere towards the end where you know it's kind of boring it's kind of like stolid it's kind of like whatever um and uh but you're just kind of like by the time you get to that third hour you're just kind of in it so it's like you might as well finish it just like how when you're at a really boring party you're like well i'm already here so i might as well just stay here until it's time to go (laughs) um and or you but then you can also look at it on the level of like you know an indictment of you know glamour culture an indictment of celebrity worship an indictment of you know you know the elite boredom of just like people with like no substance in their lives just kind of drifting and not having not making any impact in the world um i I think it's both and I, i think it works well as both like i've watched this movie just to like have it on just to like be in the atmosphere of it and i've also watched this movie to like really like think about and unpack its thematic um you know the what he's going for thematically and what he is um you know what he's saying about this you know dolce vita (laughs) um and uh, I, I I just like I find it to be so transfixing partially sometimes out of like Stockholm Syndrome it seems like because like you know once you're kind of in it you're just like in it and you're just like I just there's no way out of it but also I think like you know Marcello Mastriani you know he's such a um, he's so charming he's so kind of like greasy but he's just so fascinating as as an actor um, I guess I should say his character is greasy and charming and alluring. Um, as an actor, he's totally compelling. Um, and, you know, the sequence with Anita Ekberg, you know, the famous fountain, but even just her interview scenes, her, you know, the car ride that they're on, just the dancing she does, like, um, you know, this it just feels so glamorous and it feels so like this movie feels like it was made for you know for it was like made to be iconic because it's so grand it's so glamorous and then as this movie sort of moves on into tragedy towards the latter half of it 
it starts to feel so like you really feel the the weight of this very superficial lifestyle and you see the um the the distress the the turmoil the existential dread of it and i i find that to be extremely compelling as well you know the sequences with steiner the the finale with that young girl and the sea monster on the beach um the the tar and feather sequence like you just feel so like you feel so trapped by this film and it's really distressing um but and yet so compelling so engaging so entertaining um you know my my favorite sequence in the film is actually with um uh, Marcelo, he's in the ruins with uh, his the someone, a woman he's actually might could be in love with, um, and uh, I believe her name is Madalena in the film, uh, and um, they're in this ruins and they're in one of those like rooms where uh, because of the acoustics or whatever, there's like a sound thing where you can like hear each other as even if you're whispering in, in different rooms, something like that, yeah. and. Um, he confesses his love to her and I believe proposes to her and she's listening and then by the time he goes into the room where she's in, she's already making out with some other guy <laughs> and has already drifted off to someone else. And I find that to be so like ironic and romantic in a really heartbreaking way of like even this time where he's being so genuine and so in love and wants to actually build a life with with a, with a woman and not you know, drift around from affair to affair and, you know, casual romance to casual romance. He actually wants to, like, you know, be with someone. You know, he either loses his chance or that woman was never interested. And it sort of reinforces the story that he has to be superficial and, um, you know, stick to his very, um, you know, uh, very high-chasing life instead of chasing something that meaningful and even he sees his friend Steiner and how miserable Steiner is even with all the markings of a fulfilled life you know like a family an intellectual career you know just a life that actually means something Steiner is just as miserable everyone's miserable but everyone's having fun too it's it's this weird weird thing but yeah, I love La Dolce Vita. I think it's absolutely incredible and tremendous and magnificent. And, you know, I love that it's three hours long. It's the kind of movie that I wish were like seven hours long so I could just have it on all day. <laughs> yeah, I, I forgot it was three hours long. I don't remember it being three hours long. I remember watching it as being just so entranced because I love Fellini. Yeah. I need to see, I need mm-hmm. to see more Fellini. Um, yeah. But God, it's, it's such a beautiful movie. And like that stark black and white, that location, mm-hmm. uh, the beauty of it, the natural beauty of like you know, the 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 city the cities are shooting it in, uh, it's just been stuck in my head forever. And I forget like there is a like a movie uh, that was kind of similar to this that came out in the last few years that was like strikingly kind of like almost like a remake of La Dolce Vita. Oh, I, I forget who did it yeah yeah and i don't know i anyway i don't, I don't even know why i bring it up i just maybe bring it up just because like 
it's hard to do La Dolce Vita without like specifically doing La Dolce Vita. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like that movie is also striking. That director, I think, also has style. But you know, it's hard to escape the gra- the gravitational pull of like La Dolce Vita and Fellini. So mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Um, let me go to we're in the top four now. Hey, all about Eve, number four from 1950. Another one I haven't seen. Oh no. Marcel, you got to use this list. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I'm embarrassing myself on this episode. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, um, all that Eve, like it's one of the best screenplays I've ever have seen in a film ever. It's pure acid. It's very vicious, but it's actually it's not pure acid. It's it's acidic. It's vicious, but there's some heart to it. Betty Davis gives one of my favorite old Hollywood performances. She's so bitchy, but so vulnerable. Um, you know, Betty Davis, her reputation as being sort of this like bitch goddess is earned. I mean, she is that. I think she owns that. But she's also very, um, she can be very vulnerable, very self, uh, self-unsure. And uh, this movie is a, a kind of a, a really kind of bleak satire of um, not of Hollywood but of Broadway and Broadway culture and this idea of um, actresses aging out of roles that are meant for younger women um, and this sort of cycle of young women replacing old, older women kind of in this sort of what turns out to be sort of an endless loop. And um, I think it's, um, yeah, I mean, the characters are so funny. Um, there's so much backstabbing, backstabbing and politicking and scheming. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that uh, it's... Um, quotable, extremely quotable, and I, I, I think the what really just ties it all together for me is Betty Davis. I mean, I think she is uh, completely watchable in this film, even when she's screaming her head off or, you know, being really bitchy and kind of giving some snide remarks. Um, but there is something so, um, so, like there's a pull to her you know you really just want to you root for her you want her to be happy even when she's kind of being at her worst and you know Anne Baxter as Eve who's the sort of like uh, usurper type character she is so villainous and so creepy and um, you know I, I this movie has a lot of uh, queer subtext especially with this Eve character who is like you know, her performance of straightness is so robotic and kind of, like, scary. Like, it really doesn't feel natural. And um, you also have George Sanders as, like, this very bitchy um, theater critic, very coded gay. I, I don't even think it's coded. I think it's, like, without even saying it, saying it. And, yeah, I think this is, like, this movie has, like, uh, four acting nominations for its women, which is unheard of back then or now. And uh, I think it passes the Bechdel test like in many, many scenes, unheard of then and now. And um, it feels like the kind of movie where it's like all these women are driving the story forward and George Sanders, you know. um, You also have like Celeste Holm, who is very much like, um, 
you know, a friend, but also like a little, a little shady. So I think like this movie just is a perfect example of like kind of just old Hollywood, you know, filmmaking that feels so studio programmed, but just everything is firing on all cylinders. The script is fantastic. The direction is crisp. The performances are visceral and pleasurable. Um, the dialogue is sharp. The um, everything is just so well done. And the director by um, Joseph Mankiewicz, who I believe is uh, Mank's son, if I have the Hollywood <laughs> history correct. Um, is like he's so like he just gets it you know he is so the direction is so light and energetic and it feels cinematic even in a story about theater um yeah totally just like a classic old hollywood movie the best of the best you know uh i love betty davis i've loved her for many years and this movie is a major reason why it's truly an iconic film iconic performance Oh, by the way, uh, Joseph Mankiewicz is a uh, younger brother to oh, Mank. Okay, brother, not yeah, son. Mank, okay, Mank, yeah. yeah. I I, I look it up because I wasn't sure either, and I know yeah. there are a lot of Mankiewiczs out there. Um, yeah, because it's like Ben Mankiewicz. I think is Mank's nephew. That means I, I think he's Joseph Mankiewicz's son. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, this is another one that hey you know what with this list Manish you're you're making my uh, uh, <laughs> you're, you're adding uh, more movies to my cart at Barnes & Noble because this is another oh. Criterion disc and like I, I well I'm, this is actually my goal is to um, <laughs> lie in the pockets of Barnes & Noble <laughs> you're working for Barnes & Noble not Criterion yeah, not anybody else not Criterion but Barnes & Noble you're yeah. keeping Barnes & Noble open um, yeah, I mean, it, I've heard nothing but great things about this movie. Obviously, it's one of those that I, I, uh, I've been saying this a lot this episode, especially like it's another classic. I just need to see that I need to cross off my list. Yeah. Um, not in a bad way. I need to cross, I, 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 you know, in like the best way possible. So um, that's your number four. We have three left, Manish. Wow. And by the way, I think we've already beaten. Uh, 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 Dave's runtime because uh, yeah, but yeah, I think we've been talking for an hour and a half. I think we're at almost three hours. Yeah, maybe more. This might be the longest talk from Society but podcast episode. I just want to say that Dave told me that it doesn't count because we were we took a break. <laughs> he went all the way through, and I said, "Well, I would have gone all the way through, but." Uh, we both had commitments after that. <laughs> we did. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I still don't know why I sat all the way through with, with Dave because, like, yeah. it, it was because I had nothing else to do. <laughs> if I had something else to do, I mean, I'd be like, listen. Dave is also very, you know, I hate to praise him, but he's very listenable. Yes. He talks about movies. So, it, time flies with him. By the way, you're um, very listenable uh, thank too, you. Manish. So, trust me, <laughs> trust me. This is long, but it's good. Um, that's all yeah. I'll say. Uh, three left. Belle du Jour from 1967. Yeah, Ooh. this is a... Have you seen this movie? No, another one I haven't seen. Yeah, uh, yeah. this is a Louis Manuel film from France uh, starring the great Catherine Deneuve, who was fabulous. Um, and uh, 
This is also an early Criterion movie for me, actually. But, um, you know, I saw this. A lot of these movies that are... So, okay, I did the counting. I think about a third of this list is Criterion. But many of these movies I saw before they were released by Criterion and loved them. So, uh, like Belle du Jour, I saw this. This is on Netflix. This is like 15 years ago. This movie was on Netflix, which is crazy to think about now. Um, and I watched it. And uh, But I think it was on Netflix disc because this is before uh, streaming. But um, and I watch it actually, like kind of like Eyes Wide Shut, being like, I heard this movie's kind of sexy. I want to watch it, and it is sexy, but it's very disturbing sexy. <laughs> um, and uh, but um, now having so this movie became a favorite of mine um, over the last decade or so because you know, I brought the Criterion after seeing the film on Netflix and. Um, the Criterion cover, which is the one that's on Letterbox, is beautiful. And so it caught my eye and I just had to get it. Um, I was like, oh, I like this movie, I'll just buy it. And then it just became a major favorite. Like, I watched it with new eyes on this Blu-ray because it looks so, this movie looks so soft and like, I like to say it looks like a cream puff because the colors are very lush. The cinematography is very soft. Um, Catherine Deneuve is like porcelain beauty. You know, she has this like gorgeous blonde hair, very sharp, even features. You know, these beautiful eyes. She's just like the, you know, the perfect beauty. And um, but she has a very like porcelain look to her. Like she's very stoic. She, she, I mean, she can be very warm in films. Like I've seen her in many warm films, but in Belle du Jour, um, she's especially very cold. And it's about this housewife who is in a loving but very kind of boring marriage to this like kind of like bland guy. And um, they kind of have a semi-sexless marriage. And it's because she retreats into these fantasies where she is being um, completely like degraded and, um, you know, very like rough sexual fantasies where she's like being insulted and like mud thrown at her and tied up and so she finds out from a friend that about a brothel and starts to work there but she only works there in the afternoons while her husband's at work and belle de jour means like kind of beauty of the day um and um and it's about her experiences there and sort of the but it you know, having learned more about Louis Bunuel and seeing his movies like The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie and The Phantom of Liberty and That Obscure Object of Desire, An Exterminating Angel, um, Viridiana, like, he's very much about social satires of elite people and very, his movies are very uh, absurdist. And seeing Belle du Jour with those eyes, it's a very absurd movie it kind of takes down this idea of sort of this perfect marriage because you have this woman who is, you know, so perfectly pristine and in her mind she is having mud slung at her, she's being abused verbally, she is engaging in like what seems like violent sex in a brothel, like it's taking down this idea of like sort of these like power couples, perfect marriages and I think this movie isn't as funny as like the Screech Charm is. I think it's a little like more serious, but it has some satirical elements and the interplay between fantasy and reality is fascinating. 
because Manuel offers some clues as to what's fantasy and what's reality, but he d- isn't always consistent with it, so you're always kind of questioning. And I think he's intentionally inconsistent with it. Um, and it's 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 also kind of... I mean, I don't want to say how this movie is feminist or misogynist. I don't think it's really my place to say that. I will say that uh, Susie Bright, who is a very kind of um, famous... You know, feminist writer and sexual, like sex, right? Like um, sex writer, I guess. She is on the Blu ray and she gives an interview about her opinion of the movie and she's very, thinks very highly of it. So I'm kind of like, okay, well, this movie is being appreciated in some circle, in some regards, by sort of a more like feminist sex positive circle. And because um, I, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's showing this, it's showing the idea of like, you know, you might think you have this, um, you might think you have the person in your life figured out, but you don't. And who really knows what's kind of locked in people's minds? Um, like, how much do you really know your spouse or your partner? Um, and uh, and it's also, I mean, I, I think it's just, you know, her time at the brothel leads to uh, some very bizarre, surrealist experiences. Like, for one thing, she is hired to, like, pose as this, like, rich, like, baron's, like, dead daughter. And it's very creepy. It's very strange. It's, it's very unsettling. Um, but also, it just seems very, like, it, can, it seems a little silly. Um, there's another part where this uh, Japanese businessman kind of opens his box and there's this really like, scary kind of buzzing that's inside of it and you don't really know what's in it. And then when you see uh, Catherine Deneuve after that, she seems like so um, flush and like relaxed and very spent. And it's you're just like, what happened in that cut, <laughs> you know? Um, and uh, yeah, it's a very, very strange movie, very absurd, very surreal. Um, the I want to give a special shout out to the costume design, which uh, her clothes were provided by the fashion designer Yves Saint Laurent. And um, yeah, like. She looks like the perfect kind of like China doll of of a wife, you know, like she's beautiful, she wears fashion, she's very fashionable, she's very put together, so composed, and her interior life is so messy, it's so bizarre, it's so strange, it's so like humiliating, and it's just really about like, you just don't know what's behind someone's eyes, and I think that's a really fascinating story, and um... Yeah, and I, I just, I love the look of this movie, too. I love how much it hides its very strangeness in this very, like, picturesque, very, like, you know, creamy, pastel aesthetic. You've sold me on another one, Manish, because, like, this one, this one, <laughs> more than the other was like, I have not heard, a, well, I've heard about, but I didn't know what it was about. Yeah. But now that I know what it's about, I'm more intrigued. So, it yeah. seems I'll like it it's on criterion channel currently there you go um so it's a click away (laughs) literally i can start watching it right now um but hey yeah speaking of watching things a movie i watched thanks to you manish is your number two of all time um you you, you gave me one of those movies anywhere passes or whatever because I was like, oh, I'm going to see this movie this month for on my watch list. And I thought it was on HBO, 
but apparently it's not on HBO anymore. Um, yeah, I got taken down randomly, which is odd because this director's films, like all, like not all of them, but a lot of them dropped on HBO, and like all of a sudden this one wasn't on there anymore. Um, yeah, we're we're skirting around this. Uh, it's Pedro Almodovar, and it's uh, all about oh. my mother from 1999. Of course, if you know Manish, he's gonna <laughs> he's gonna have a Almodovar movie on here. So yeah. Why this one, Manish? Why did this one reach the top? Uh, uh, because I know you love a lot of his work. Yeah. It was very challenging picking an Alvador movie. I know I said that for every director on here. I mean, this this movie, this list is more of a my favorite filmmaker's list than anything else. Um, or at least for the most part it is. And for me, picking an Alvador movie was hard because, yeah... Volver, I love Volver. I mean, you know. Yeah, we um, talked about it, yeah. We talked about it, yeah. And I love Volver, Bad Education, you know, uh, Pain and Glory, Woman on the Verge of Nervous Breakdown, Talk to Her, you know, Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down. Like, I love all these movies. Um, uh, Julieta, I'm so excited, it's Can I Live In? I mean, whatever. I, I, I could just name all these movies, but I won't do. <laughs> uh, the reason why I chose all, I'm all About My Mother is because... Um, I don't know, actually. I, I really wish I had some kind of, like, this is why, but I I watched All My Mother, like, twice in, like, two days, and I, and I wrote this, like, really kind of wild and weird essay on it for my birthday, and so it's just been in my mind since, and, you know, we're, we're making this list, I guess, around then. So, um, I, but I, I think it's so sophisticated. I think, uh... Almodovar's use of his influences, including All About Eve, um, and a streetcar, a streetcar Named Desire, and uh, you know, just the way that he blends his influences together, I think it's in peak form with this movie. This movie is rich with cultural allusions. Um, it is so just like uh, it's so beautifully. Ex filmed by by him, and it's also a movie which is his most one of his most woman centric films. I mean, Volver as well as well. But um, yeah, I think it's just such a like human story. It has a just a cast of characters who are incredibly engaging and warm and empathetic and you just want to spend so much time with them you know Cecilia Roth um, Penelope Cruz Marissa Paredes you know all these actresses in this movie are just so uh, just so emotionally compelling and the story of this film um, which kind of starts I mean this this movie has a really bizarre structure it kind of starts with this like mother-son story, and then it becomes like a grief story, and then it becomes a story about this found family, and then it becomes a story about um, kind of an all about Eve pastiche where you have someone who's an assistant to an actress going on stage for the act for another actor, and you know, there's just like it just kind of morphs and transforms itself. It becomes an AIDS movie. It becomes a you know, story about redemption. It becomes all this stuff, but Avodovar just handles it so beautifully. He, um, you know, it's just the structure of this movie is just handled so so well, even with all of its sort of twists and turns. And 
um, yeah, I think it's so like um, it feels like a pinnacle of his career. You know, he's made brilliant films, masterpieces before this movie. He's made masterpieces after this movie, uh, but this one just feels like he is just fire, just on fire. And the the run, this movie also starts a run of his where he's just really topping himself with everything. I mean, there's this. Then talk to her, the bad education, and then Volver. I mean, those four movies together, like it's crazy to think about that he made all four of those in a row, um, and because they're all just like pushing himself even further. I mean, even beyond those movies, like Broken Embraces, Can I Live in Pain and Glory. I mean, he's masterpieces all, uh, and before this movie, masterpieces. But um, you know, I just think All My Mother just feels like. It just feels special. It feels more sophisticated. It feels more um, emotionally honest. It feels more like uh, it's somewhat both extreme melodrama, like the way he makes it, but also so grounded. Um, And yeah, I think just it's it's so perfect. I mean, I really can't think of anything negative to say about this movie. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Watching it, uh, last week and having seen only just a handful of, uh, of his movies like I've seen Time mm-hmm. Me Up Time Me Down I've seen Volver of course Skin I Live In Pain and Glory I think that's it and now All About My Mother like it's it's All About My Mother has so much of what he's going for in terms of like themes and the style, um, like even the, the, the actors he works with, yeah. there's so much of him in All About My Mother that like I'm I'm kind of with you where the ones I've seen it's hard for me to pick a favorite one, but this one seems to me anyway like his most him or like the, it has enough of him in it that I can say yeah if you want to know who he is watch this movie and you will get it if you don't understand you know him by the end of this then well there's more to look for but even so like he, he i need to see more of his early stuff but like i'm in agreement with you like it feels like this is like a statement of his and like, yes like it's he's doing something and like uh, his run there they just like like name checked like that's incredible yeah yeah so, and even now he's doing amazing work. Like he's 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 got another movie coming out with Penelope Cruz, and I'm like, yes, keep I'm doing so that. Excited. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So where do we go now? I mean, we've talked Amadovar, right? So yeah. What could possibly be the number one film? Uh, I wonder if anyone's like, you know, oh, Hitchcock is Hitchcock is missing from <laughs> this no list. There's no Hitchcock here. <laughs> uh, but no, I mean. Shouldn't be that big of a surprise, right? Yeah. Number one, the Hitchcock movie from 1958. Hey, Vertigo. Vertigo. Oh boy, Manish. I mean, the obvious. I mean, I think you already know what I'm going to ask. I mean, yeah. You've written so much about Hitchcock. You've written. You've written about all the movies uh, that Hitchcock directed, right? For Talk from Society. Yeah. That, you know, the, the beginner's guide to Hitchcock. Uh, if you, if you haven't checked that out, folks, please do. Um, but yeah, uh, you're, you're the person, Manish, who I know who knows the most about Hitchcock and who knows, I mean, you've seen all the movies, uh, that the man made, but when I, when I want a trusted, reliable source on Hitchcock, 
I'm going to go to you. So I'm going to trust you when you say Vertigo <laughs> is a great movie, period. <laughs> I'm only, I'm only going to trust you. Nobody else I can trust. And anybody else tells me Vertigo is good, I'm going to go. No, I want to hear what Manish thinks. So Manish, talk about Vertigo. It's great. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> period. We're done. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's it. Bye. Um, you know, Vertigo... Uh, I've seen this movie... So... On Letterboxd, this is my most watched movie. 14 times on Letterboxd over wow. the last 10 years that I've been on it. But there's also times when I've watched it uh, and like wasn't logging. Uh, I know that for sure. Because like, there was a period I just wasn't using it. And I watched this I watched this movie a lot even before I got Letterboxd. So I think I've seen this 20 times, if not more. And it's somehow become a comfort movie for me, even though it's a very disturbing, unsettling, and tragic film. But it's, I think what I find so comforting about it is, A, I've seen it so much that, like, I can, like, recite the dialogue along with the film. So it just feel, it's just, like, comfortable because it's comforting because I just know it so well, but also, like, the rhythms of it, the music of it, like, it just feels, like, um, in a weird way, like, just, like, a little soothing, even though it's so, like, strange. Um... But whenever I watch it, to like really just like watch it, watch it, I really get um, so uh, enraptured by the um, by just how tragic it is, and it's a movie about uh, you know two lost souls who are tied together by this crime that no one actually really even cares about, um, and they are so lonely and desperate that they just kind of cling to each other and um there's this uh you know there's this thing where um it it's like a ghost story in it's like two different kinds of ghost stories in the two halves of the movie in the first part it's a very like conventional ghost story about you know, um, a spirit out to possess the living and, you know, it feels very gothic horror and it's very, like, there's a hint of supernatural and stuff. You don't know what's, you know, you don't know if it's real or if it's not real. And in the second half, you actually get this extremely grounded ghost story about a guy who is just so uh, enveloped by the past that he, uh, you know, it lay, he lays claim to... <laughs> another woman's life because of that and um everyone's life is so everyone's lives are so affected by this obsession with the past and this obsession with compete this obsession with another ghost that is not real but feels just as present as like a real ghost would be and i so i feel like this movie is so tragic and um you know that's that's been sort of my sort of take on the movie uh, in the sort of last couple of times that I've seen it, just how sad it is, and I think that it's also a very um, yeah, it's so unsettling and it's so like just it's just it's really disturbing because in some ways it it has its audience really get into the obsession where you don't even notice I, I feel like I don't really notice how toxic the movie is until it gets to that like last 20 minutes right because you're so 
in Rapture. You're so consumed by this story that, at least for me, I know some people watch this movie and they're like, it's so creepy, I can't even like deal with it. And I'm like, that's fair. It is creepy. But I think it's very intentionally creepy. I don't think that it's like a mistake of how weird this movie is. I mean, I, I, I don't think anything Hitchcock does is a mistake. That's especially in these sort of like prestige classic like masterpieces of his like you know the rear windows and what by northwest the notorious the psycho whatever i don't think anything that happens is a mistake i think he's really on on point with everything he's doing um now i know hitchcock is somewhat of a controversial figure because you know the, there's a lot of just a lot going on there um i don't really I don't like to be the guy that's like, well, you know, he was so obsessed with his actresses that he always tried to remake them, and that's where Vertigo comes from. I don't know. It just feels like it robs some of the creativity by just being like, well, this is a replay of his personal life. Um, I think that there's some truth to it. I mean, I know that he was very, like, um, he was very taken by Grace Kelly and even Marie Saint Ingrid Bergman and, and, you know, Tippi Hedren, of course, after this. But I also think that he is just like, wants to make a movie about obsession and holding on to the past and the pressure of living up to the past. Um, and to be honest, like it's my favorite James Stewart performance. Uh, it's my, I mean, Kim Novak performance as well. Like um, the look of the film is incredible. The use of color, like greens and reds and blues and purple, uh, so striking, so um, unforgettable. The music by Bernard Herrmann is, I think, one of my favorite scores. I mean, it's so, it's like, makes you feel insane. There's all these like ups and downs and loops and um, very Wagnerian, according to the special features in the Blu-ray. Um, and uh, yeah, and I, I love the circular structure of this film. You know, lines get repeated so many times. Um, scenarios happen multiple times in the film. Um, you know, it just feels so loopy and circular and almost inescapable that by the time you're at the end of it, it's like some kind of like release. You know, you feel like you've like died and it feels like there's like a release to it because you're finally out of the cycle. Now, what happens after the end of the film, I don't know. Um, it, you know, it's another cycle that continues, but there just feels like some kind of escape to it. And yeah, I think it's just like, you know, it's, I, I like to call it a psycho, like a psycho romance or like a mis, like a romantic mystery or like romantic psycho thriller because yeah. it feels so interior and psychological and intense. Um, it feels like, this movie knows how psychologically like distressing this it, it is and um it really wants to like swallow you whole i think in the ways that you know the ghost of madeline swallows jimmy stewart whole um and same with uh judy too it's just like you know these two just lonely human beings just get complete and completely eaten up alive and um that's that's the horror of this film like i don't know i don't i don't consider this movie a horror movie but i think it's horrific in the way that it's 
so um, just in all enveloping, all consuming, and uh, even having said that, I still consider it a comfort movie for me. <laughs> it says a lot but about you, Manish. Yeah, <laughs> but in the sense of like, I've just seen it so many times that like, it feels like I don't have to. Like, I can just easily give myself over to it because it's such a part of my life. I mean, this is my favorite Hitchcock movie even before I knew, like, how famous Hitchcock was or how well-regarded this movie was. Like, something about it just clicked for me and then I, like, discovered uh, how, like, acclaimed it was. And I was like, oh, wow, that's, like, who knew? Um, Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I just love it. I think it's, you know, I know that it's on so many li- like best films ever made lists and but I think even with that I still feel like there's just so much left to explore with it. Yeah, it's it's a movie I've seen recently and I'm still just just in awe of like um, yeah. like forget, <clears throat> you know, how autobiographical it is in terms of like, you know, Hitchcock's own obsession beyond that beyond the icky factor you know that that comes yeah. with that it's still it, like a lot of it i'm so so shocked that a, a movie that is seen as a classic like does things uh, well, uh what i'm trying to say is it's like it's like so there's like psychedelic moments there's like like trippy uh moments of like really getting into uh, jimmy stewart's head in this movie that i'm just surprised that it's like it happened <laughs> it's kind of like yeah. it's kind of like the 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 time travel sequence in like uh 2001 or, or that like long psychedelic sequence there like that moments like that i'm always surprised of like oh an audience sits down for this and experiences it and it's yeah. seen as a classic like he hitchcock got away with it and it's seen as a classic and i'm just like it's still like yes <laughs> and those twists at the end and how it ends uh mm-hmm. it still sticks with me it's it it's still yeah. so viscerally just 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 powerful yeah yeah my gosh so yeah that's that, that's vertigo what else can we say about vertigo that i mean that's that's your number one of all time so and it feels like it was an easy decision for you manish i guess did, did you did you know it was going to be vertigo this whole time there's gonna be number one yeah yeah because the thing is that like because i've seen it like a million times it's feels like a defining movie for my life like a lot of what I because I watched this as I was getting into film in general and I mean Hitchcock was instrumental in how I even approached watching film like you know I see Hitchcock everywhere just because like he taught me so much about cinema and filmmaking and Vertigo is hugely impactful there Um, I mean I, I think that um there's just no question that this movie means so much to me, you know, and um, and very much like with All By My Mother, it's also a stand-in for all these masterpieces of Hitchcock's that I love. Rear Window, Notorious, uh, 39 Step, Psycho, you know, all that, all that stuff, like um, Shadow of a Doubt, like, you know, it's... All those movies I love and have appreciated and, and could easily be on this list, but only Vertigo could be the number one, and so it had to be there and it had to be this film from Hitchcock. 
There you go. And what a perfect place to end. (laughs) (laughs) We did it. We did it, Manish. We did it. We did it. So thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing your list. Thank you so much for having me for this very long list. I feel... I, I mean, feel great that uh, it took so long. It's <laughs> a really great discussion. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Before we go, plugs. Where can people listening find you online? So find me on Twitter at the Manish89, T H E M A N I S H 89. Also, my two podcasts, uh, It Pod to Be You, which can be found at It Pod to Be You and Queer Now with the aforementioned Dave at Queer Now Pod. Um, I've believe that queer not pod was on a hiatus but i think we're gonna come back and do it um we're gonna come back to it so i'm really excited to get back to that and uh yeah that's those are the main places to find me but twitter especially there you go if you're not following manish on twitter what are you doing with your life <laughs> um but yes um that's it folks maybe the longest episode uh, on Talk Film Society ever. <laughs> I think we've surpassed three hours and like 30 minutes maybe, but hey, yeah. who's keeping count? Maybe the next episode will be even longer. Yeah, Who knows? But thank you, Manish, again. This was fun. And as always, the thing I say at the end of every show, hey, see you at the movies. No, I never say that. All right, bye. <laughs> <laughs>